All right, YouTube, I'm Dave Rubin, and joining me on the Rubin Report today is a 2020 Democratic presidential candidate and author of the book, The War on Normal People. Andrew Yang, welcome to the Rubin Report. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here, Dave. I am glad to have you here. I'm going to give you props before we do anything else, because I like to soften up a, a guest before we get into the hard stuff. Um, your team reached out to us, and not only did they reach out to us about being on the show, they said, you could say whatever you want. We don't want any advanced questions. He has no intention. He'll stay as long as you want. This thing is as open and honest and real as it could possibly be. Um, is that by design of how you're running your campaign? Because that's, that's pretty freaking rare these days. Uh, I guess it is by design in the sense we don't know any other way to operate. And I, I think there are other candidates that would have talking points and um, various constraints, but that's not how I've gotten to this point. That's not how I qualified for the Democratic primary debates, and we just want to keep on doing what's natural for us. Is part of what's wrong with politics right now that people won't do this type of thing that often? It's, it's pretty rare to just sit two, three feet across from somebody, look them in the eye, and try to figure out what they think? Uh, I, I actually had my mind blown that this was so unusual. <laughs> <laughs> it, it took my running for president and being in the race for a number of months to figure out that uh, most interactions are much more brief and scripted and less personal. And I know there are some candidates who've uh, gone back and forth about joining you, but to me, I'm grateful to you. I think this is an awesome opportunity to, to introduce myself uh, and the campaign to a lot of people. Uh, and congrats on the work you do. Cool. Well, I really appreciate that, and I think we're going to treat this probably uh, more differently than any other interview you've done, because I don't have canned gotcha things, and I'm, I'm not trying to get you. I truly want to know what you think about oh, the issues. I told <laughs> ah, or did I just say, yep, we'll find out. But I did tell you right before we started, I have never, this is the most questions that I've ever written for an interview, because when I've been on your website for the last week while doing the research on you, it's like you've actually really staked out all of your positions. Uh, but before we get to any of that, I, let's just do for the people that have no idea who you are, because uh, I think you've got some real nice sort of energy in the in the internet space that I'm in. Uh, but for the more mainstream people that are watching right now, uh, could you just tell a little bit about your your family background, where your folks are from, you're a second generation immigrant, et cetera, et cetera. Sure, my, my parents met in graduate school at UC Berkeley. My father got his PhD in physics. My mother got her masters in statistics, so very nerdy uh, Taiwanese <laughs> immigrants. My brother is named after the Lawrence Observatory, so we used to joke that my parents got busy there, but I'm sure they ah. did. Uh, so uh, you'd think I'd be a, a West Coast kid, but my father ended up getting a job at GE in Schenectady, New York, where I was born. So I grew up in upstate New York in Schenectady, and then in Westchester County in a town called Katona. Uh, and so I grew up, uh, to me, it, it was, uh, I think, a fairly typical suburban um, first generation, born in this country, second generation immigrant, um, child of immigrants, uh, where I had an older brother and we were very nerdy. Uh, I saw the comic books in your <laughs> green room and like yeah, I was yeah. like an avid uh, Dungeons and Dragons player and Marvel Comics reader and video game player. Um, so You did see the Nintendo in there. We could live stream a little Nintendo after this. Uh, it's been a while. <laughs> So you, you realize that that's what people would rather watch than talking about policy. Well, that's what my six-year-old would rather watch. <laughs> because like, I, I, I cannot believe how many freaking gaming videos there are where I just walk into the living room and it's like my six-year-old watching like someone else play video games. That's particularly weird. It's not that he's playing video games. It's no. that he's watching someone else play I video games. I would feel games. better if he was playing them. Yeah, you good. 
Yes. This is what your job as a father is to achieve, you know. So you're right that I guess this would be very, very highly rated programming. You wouldn't be playing video games. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how much energy we have left after this. Um, so you went to you went to Yale and you studied. Uh, I actually went to Brown. I'm sorry. You went to Brown. No, no, right. don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you went to Brown and you studied political science and economics, correct? Yeah. Before that, I went to. Uh, boarding school in New Hampshire called Phillips Exeter. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where it got weird. <laughs> how, did, yeah, how, did it, how did it get weird? Well, so I was growing up, uh, you know, in my suburb, uh, fairly typical upbringing, I think. Um, I went to this nerd camp over the summer called CTY that was run out of Johns Hopkins University. And then one of my campmates said she went to this high school called Exeter in New Hampshire and really liked it. And it seemed really nerdy and I was pretty nerdy. So I was like, oh, let's do that. Yeah. So I came back that summer, went to my, my uh, parents and said, hey, how about sending me away to school? And uh, the one of my... Uh, uh, one of my motivations was that my brother is, was uh, two years older than me and was leaving for college, and I didn't want to be left a, at home alone with my parents. Uh -huh. So I was like, why don't you send us both away the same year? <laughs> um, so I went to, to prep school in New Hampshire for two years, uh, and then I went to Brown yeah. and started economics. And so what, what was weird about it? This episode of The Rubin Report comes to you with support from our friends over at Bravo Company Manufacturing. In the Second Amendment, the Founding Fathers guaranteed an individual the right to protect themselves. Owning a rifle is an awesome responsibility, and building rifles is no different. Started in a garage by a Marine veteran more than two decades ago, Bravo Company Manufacturing, or BCM for short, builds a professional grade product which is built to combat standards. This is because BCM believes that the same level of protection should be provided to every American, regardless if they're a private citizen or a professional. Bravo Company Manufacturing is not a sporting arms company. They design, engineer, and manufacture life-saving equipment. BCM assumes that when a rifle leaves their shop, it'll be used in a life or death situation by a responsible citizen, law enforcement officer, or a soldier overseas, so quality is of utmost value to them. Every component of a BCM rifle is hand-assembled and tested by Americans in Heartland, Wisconsin to a life-saving standard. BCM has always put people before products. They build their products because they feel it's their moral responsibility as Americans to provide tools that will not fail the end user when it's not just a paper target, but someone coming to do them harm. Because of this, BCM knows that making reliable, life-saving tools is only half the story. They also work with leading instructors of marksmanship from top levels of America's special operations forces. To learn more about Bravo Company Manufacturing, head on over to bravocompanymfg.com, where you can discover more about their products, special offers, and upcoming news. That's bravocompanymfg.com. Need more convincing? Find out even more about BCM and the awesome people who make their products at youtube.com slash bravocompanyusa. And now back to the show. I mean, I, you, do you have any friends who went to uh, Exeter, one of the New England prep schools? No, I don't. No? No. I'm, I'm a wow. New, I've only lived in New York and L.A. I'm, I'm another weird breed myself. Well, I mean, I had a lot of friends who went to Binghamton because, you know, if you grow up in a suburb of New York, all the smart yeah. honor roll kids uh, go to Binghamton. Um, but Exeter is a very... I, I appreciate the props there. Oh, that's true. I mean, like, uh, like I, I went up and visited my, my friends there um, several times. So... Uh, Exeter's is a very snooty New England prep school, uh, and I did not know what I was getting into when I showed up there. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was 15. Uh, it was a bit of a pressure cooker, uh, and I actually went back to speak there as like an esteemed, you know, alum right. uh, a few months back, and so it, it had me revisit my high school years there because I hadn't been back since I graduated, um, and. Uh, 
it, it was a, a really intellectually formative environment. Like the education was top notch, but it was also very high pressure classes on Saturdays, and there was this deep sense of where you got into college was your uh, value as a human being, like that, that kind of culture. Mm -hmm. uh, not that they necessarily made that explicit, but it was very much there among the students. Yeah, do you think that was all good because it, it led us, you know, put a certain amount of pressure on you to succeed, or do you think there were drawbacks to that? There were definitely drawbacks, because there were, there were some kids I went to school with that had real problems, and not just like, oh, they're stressed out kind of problems, but like uh, institutionalization, um, at least one suicide I know of. Uh, one of my dorm mates is in jail for um, murdering his ex-girlfriend as an adult. So, I mean, there, there are some things that, like a lot of human condition darkness um, that, that resulted from, in part, the pressure. Yeah, do you think that that kind of pressure is partly why uh, college right now and the universities seem so out of whack? I want to talk to, uh, to you about that a little bit later as well, but just the general state of pressure that young people feel like they're under, which is why I think some of your economic policies are so directed towards young people right now. Yeah, very much so. I mean, one of the things I say in my book is that, like, I got into to, uh, Brown and Stanford when I was applying to, to college. My parents were psyched. The acceptance rates for those schools were 20% plus when uh, I was applying back in 1992. Then you look now, uh, those uh, acceptance rates are, so I think, like 9 and 5% or something like that. Mm -hmm. So kids are under even more pressure now to try and get into various competitive schools. And then when they show up to these schools, the pressure doesn't stop. Uh, and so you have these epically high levels of anxiety and depression uh, and stress, uh, in part because when they come out of school, they're entering a really punishing economy where 44% of recent college graduates are going to be underemployed. And on some level, they all kind of sense this. And so the, like, in, instead of an environment of intellectual exploration, college seems like a like a culling <laughs> or yeah. like a, or, uh, or well, you know, well, almost like indentured in servitude or something in a weird way. Yeah, and, and because of the, the record levels of um, both cost and the school loans that were loading up on top of young people. So the, the, to me, it is all tied together. I mean, certainly Exeter is its own thing. Um, but I think I have at least some uh, exposure to the sorts of stress and anxiety that a lot of young people are feeling. And a lot of it is because of very legitimate economic forces. It's not just like in, in people's heads. Yeah. Did you have to take out loans to go to college yourself? Uh, I was under partial scholarship um, from IBM. Uh, and then I took out over 100000 in loans to go to law school, which was my next great move. <laughs> um, so when I, I graduated from Brown, I didn't know what to do. So I, I went to law school. Yeah, you went to Yale Law, right? I went to Columbia. Columbia. Where, where am I getting Yale from? Uh, Did I just make this up altogether? <laughs> it's I just, fine. <laughs> I, I think I just completely I, made that up. All right. No, they, they, I mean, there there were some mistakes to make. They're, okay, they're accused, fair. accused of accused going of going to, going to Yale Law. <laughs> uh, so you were so you go to college and then you become a corporate lawyer first, right? Yeah, I was an unhappy corporate attorney for five months. Five months? Yes. How miserable was it that you only lasted five months? You strike me as a guy that could probably kind of plow through some stuff that you don't oh, necessarily Oh, it's kind like. of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll tell you a story. I'm not sure I've told this story before, but um, so I, I was in my first or second month on the job, and my phone rings on Friday afternoon at 6 p.m. And I was like, oh, let me pick up the phone. And I see, and it's the... Um, the staffing coordinator is the person who tells you, like, hey, you're on this assignment. And so then it hit me. I was like, wait a minute. If I pick up this phone, I'm going to be here all weekend. <laughs> and then I was like, what happens if I don't pick up this phone? And so I looked at it, and I was like, huh, 
and I didn't pick up the phone and it stopped ringing and then I just walked out and just had a weekend. Um, and then I came back on Monday and I saw a friend uh, in the office. I said, hey, how was your weekend? He was like, oh, I got a call at 6 o'clock on Friday and I was here all weekend working on the, these oh. documents. And so I was like, I don't consider myself like a shirker or a lazy guy. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I, I was reflecting on my behavior and I was like, you know, I, I did not feel bad about not picking up that phone. So I was like, I need to find a job where I'm actually excited to pick up that phone. Um, and so I, I realized that I didn't want to do this job long term, and it was going to get harder, not easier to leave. Mm -hmm. And so if those two things were true, then I should leave uh, immediately. So I started thinking about what my next step would be, and uh, I uh, uh, co-founded this dot-com um, that ended up you know, not working out. But uh, so that's what prompted me to leave at the five month mark. How hard was that decision? Because I find this when I go speak at colleges now a lot. You see like a lot of kids that are training for one thing, but they know it may not quite exist the way they want it to exist in five years. So after you've gone to law school, you've racked up some debt, you've yeah. gotten a job at a corporate law firm, you think you have a path to suddenly go, I don't want to pick up that phone on a Friday. That, that, that's a major decision. That's not something you do lightly. It was somewhat rash. Um, I was 25, and I thought, I'm never going to have lower levels of personal obligations than I do right now. Uh, even with my six figures in school loans, I was like, oh, I don't have you know, a wife and kids. I don't have a mortgage. I don't have any of that stuff. So if I don't try and do something entrepreneurial now, I may never do it. Yeah, so you did the dot-com thing, and that didn't quite work out. No, it did not. Yeah. <laughs> you, do we want to go any further on that, or should we just oh, accept I, that it didn't work out? It was just one of those well, things. Well, it's, it's one of those things that I, you know, I empathize with folks who are trying to uh, make positive things happen and start businesses, because there's a lot of mythology around entrepreneurship. And the danger is that anyone who shows up on a panel is like, I went through the tale of woe, but then I ended up shiny. <laughs> right, right. And you can too. And then everyone's like, oh. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and the the reality of it's really gritty. It's very difficult. Not everyone uh, has it work out. Uh, a lot of stress. And there's a lot of bullshit around it too, where anyone, one of the things I say is like, if anyone asks you how you're, uh, startup is doing, you always have to say it's going great. Yeah. <laughs> it, doesn't, right, right, right. it doesn't, doesn't matter how it's actually going. So it's profoundly isolating because you can't have honest conversations about what, what you're doing. You know, it's funny. I had a friend about a year ago that I was playing basketball with. So I would see him once a week on Sundays and he had this little startup company and he was always telling me it was going great. It's going great, going, going great. And then one day I'm flipping the channels and I see one of those reality shows where they go into businesses that are disasters and fix it. And, and it was him? And it's him. And I'm like, that's all you need to know right there. Yeah, so, uh, so I went through that, and I, I had a very, very deep empathy for the folks who work and struggle and toil in obscurity because, like, that's 99% of entrepreneurship. You know, it's a bit like parenting where, like, 99% of it is not, like, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like, like taking pride in your kid's awesome achievements. Like, 99% right, right, right. of it is, uh, in, you know, done in uh, isolation and obscurity. And trying to get the kid off the iPad watching other people play video games. Actually. Yes, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. um, well, what, what did you learn, like, sort of technically through the, the struggle of kind of trying to build your own thing and having it not work out? I learned a lot. Um, so, uh, well, one, I learned that at that point I was not strong enough to build a successful business. And so that's one reason why I ended up working for another startup uh, a company that was led by someone I admired because I thought, okay, if I'm not strong enough to do this now, then I should find someone who's stronger than me and then try and learn from him. So, uh, so I learned that. Um, I, I learned about my own relationships because when you do something that you put your heart and soul into, like start a business or, in this case, run for president. <laughs> yeah, uh, that thing, that thing. Yeah. That, that little thing, yeah. Uh, that 
you have some friends that come through for you, and then you have some friends that just disappear. Uh, so you learn that. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, Pretty damn quickly, huh? Yeah. yeah. Um, so you, you grow a lot individually. Uh, and people who've started a business and failed, like I, I feel like we all have these battle wounds or scars that, uh, you know, if you talk to someone who's been through it, you have a real shared commonality. Yeah. You think that gives you a little bit of the sort of courage you need to do something like this, which is obviously a pretty uphill battle? Well, I will say for several years after my business failed, um, I was like, well, it can't be as bad as my business failing. <laughs> like, it's, it makes you very bulletproof. Uh -huh. um, like, I you know, owed still 100000 in uh, law school loans, like, and everyone I knew knew that my company had failed. Um, and so you feel really beaten up, um, but then you realize that uh, other people still like you or respect you or don't or know nothing about you, and so you just like meet someone for the first time. They don't think like, "Oh, you're a failure." Right, right. You don't <laughs> hand them the card like, "This is how much I'm in debt." Yes, right. uh, you know, it's like no one knows you a hundred thousand unless you're dumb enough to tell them. Right. So, <laughs> so you, you do know we're broadcasting this on YouTube. Uh, well, you know, I mean, now I'm happy to say it, those loans are a thing in the past. Yeah. Though, though my parents during this period were just telling everyone I was still a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. <laughs> because it was like easier for them than saying yeah. that I was, uh, you know, this entrepreneur that uh, had failed. So speaking of that, actually, you mentioned the pressure you were getting when you went to boarding school. But what kind of pressure did you get from your folks? Well, my folks were not thrilled when I left the firm. But I said, look, uh, I'll figure it out. Like, I'm not going to ask you for anything and just, you know, respect my, my decision. Uh, and they saw that I was working really hard, so then they, uh, you know, warmed up to it over time. Um, you know, it would be one thing if I would, like, quit the firm and was, like, doing, you know, um, doing something really frivolous, but they saw I was uh, putting my heart and soul into the business. Yeah. So before we go further on your work adventure, let's back up for a second. So because you studied political science, was your family particularly political? Were you political? Did you have a strong political bent before college? And did that change in college or anything like that? That's a good question. Um, I always get one. Well, I, I, so I was a um, debater uh, at Exeter, and mm -hmm. I went to the World Public Speaking and Debating Championships of 92 in London. Um, and so I had an interest in uh, philosophy and um, political science. I never thought I would personally run for office. Uh, Particularly, the more exposure you get, and I'm sure many people watching this know this too, it's like there's politics in the abstract and then there's politics in real life. Uh, and most people, as they mature into adults, want nothing to do with politics in real life. <laughs> Card five is all about that. We'll get there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I had an interest in the um, abstraction of politics throughout my college years, but I did not think I was ever going to run for office. Yeah. Did you have a particular political belief? I mean, were you, did you always consider yourself liberal or progressive? Or so I, I you know, I came of age during uh, the first Clinton term, and so like I considered myself a Democrat um, at that point, um, uh, and uh, didn't really participate that avidly outside of presidential, so I wasn't actively involved in local politics. And I was living in New York, and as you know, New York is so blue that uh, there isn't that much to be engaged with uh, um, politically. Yeah, and now I moved to California, which is it's even bluer, blue. so it's, yes. uh, I should be doing something a little more purple, I think. But that's why I do this online, because it's like... You reach everyone. You, you got the true cross-section. Yeah, okay, so the, the startup busts, and you, and you learn some stuff from that, and then you go work. This is now at a, at a health care Technology firm, right? company, yeah. Technology I was employee company. number four at a small software company. Yeah. So I worked in urban hospitals for four years. 
uh, trying to roll out this um, information service where surgeons could get access to um, the pre-surgery surgery information that was in paper form. They would fax it, and we digitize it, and then uh, post it online. Mm -hmm. So uh, that, that now that sounds kind of standard, but that probably was pretty pretty cutting edge at the time, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it was. Um, I mean, we we raised uh, seven million or so while I was there. We got went from zero in revenue to several million. Um, but I was so burnt from the my own startup that died and another startup that I was at for six months or so that ran out of money. And so when I was working at this healthcare technology company, um, I, I had a couple of side hustles because I was like, I need to be able to pay my bills no matter what. Um, so I started uh, throwing parties on the side. I was a nightclub promoter huh. uh, downtown. I don't I, think that's in your bio on your website. Uh, it may not be. <laughs> it's, it's buried somewhere. It will uh, now be on your Wikipedia. Looking for an easy, affordable way to stock up for summer grilling, as well as a great gift? Think Omaha Steaks. I recently grilled their filet mignon to perfection and can't wait for my next Omaha Steak dinner. Right now, Omaha Steaks is giving a limited time Father's Day gift offer to my listeners. Go to omahasteaks.com and enter code RUBEN in the search bar for 74% off the Father's Day Steak Fix gift package. A $235 value now for only $59.99. Order now and you'll get two tender filet mignons, two bold top sirloins, two savory pork chops, four Omaha steak burgers, four massive gourmet jumbo franks, four crispy chicken fried steaks, all beef meatballs, four premium chicken breasts, four caramel apple tartlets for dessert, a packet of Omaha steak signature seasoning, and you'll get four extra Omaha steak burgers for free. Give this amazing package as a gift for dad or stock up for incredible summer grilling all at 74% off. Again, order now and you can get this exclusive Omaha Steaks Father's Day Steak Fix package valued at $235 for just $59.99. Just go to omahasteaks.com and type code RUBEN into the search bar. Don't wait, this offer ends soon. Go to omahasteaks.com, type RUBEN in the search bar to get the Father's Day Steak Fix package today. And now back to the show. But what happened was I, I had a birthday party in my late 20s uh, and a lot of Asians showed up and they liked to drink. And then I was like, huh, there's something here. And so then I, I had a party and then again, a bunch of Asians showed up and they <laughs> liked to drink. And I was right. like, wow, I can throw parties and uh, like hundreds of people show up. Uh, and so uh, we... You know, I had a website and um, uh, uh, mini technology uh, backend and database and CRM uh, under the name Ignition NYC. So I, I did that as a, a, a side hustle. Uh, and then I also helped my friend with his education company, uh, High End Test Prep. I was one. Of, I was the first instructor, and I helped develop the curriculum um, while he was starting the company, um, also as a side hustle. And so that side hustle ended up morphing into uh, my becoming CEO of that company several years later. But for four years, I was working in urban hospitals helping manage information systems. So since you were big on the party scene in New York City, I feel like contractually I have to ask you, do you get the Asian flush when you drink? Um, I get like the Asian sleepiness. <laughs> Is that a thing? There's the Asian sleepiness that's different than white guy sleepiness? Or, uh, um, well, so I'll, if, I, that, if I have... Is that a known thing? I, I'm, I'm actually not sure if the Asian sleepiness is yeah. a known thing. But if, if I drink, I get drowsy. Yeah. Um, and so I would have these parties and be stone cold sober the whole time. Yeah. So on the test prep stuff, uh, since I think you're, you're, you're 43? Four, 44. 40, 44. So I'll be 43 this month. 
So we took the old school SAT. Yeah. Do you remember what you got? Um, I did well. I was good at filling out the bubbles. <laughs> Is that, that's the first KG answer you've given me. Do you, do you um, want to give me the number? I, I, I wasn't planning on asking you this. But like, I, I actually don't remember yeah. the, the number precisely. Yeah. Okay, but you did well. I, I did do well. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> so I'm, I'm like thinking about it because, um, so I took, I remember this number. I took the SAT when I was 12 and got a 1220 uh, on the old scale. Oh, geez. Um, All right. And, and then everyone in my public school found out that score. And then it was like, I, I was like an alien um, and I did not, I was like literally 12 years old, so I had no idea why anyone cared. Um, but I, I do remember that experience. Okay, well, 12, if you got a 1220 when you were 12, then you're in good shape. Because I got a 1200 as, when I was 16 or something, that was, it got me into Binghamton, so it was pretty decent. So you, you did okay. Well, I well, think is well one of the things I try and tell people is like these tests don't measure really anything that significant. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this is coming from a guy who ran a, a test prep company that I became. Is, is that one really the what you realized there? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I did. Uh, you know, it, it measures a very narrow, uh, uh, narrow set of intellectual traits, um, and one of the major problems we have is that we're um, dehumanizing um, many of our young people through teaching to the test and having this hierarchical. Uh, arrangement where the hierarchy, in my mind, obscures many other uh, human and intellectual capacities. Yeah. So did all of this sort of lead to your interest in tech and AI and what eventually becomes the big discussion around you with UBI and all that? Were, were just all of these just little steps that kind of eventually fit into the, the sort of person that we know you are now? <laughs> the person I am today. The, the robot that you are, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, so fail.com. Uh, four years in uh, healthcare software, and then six years running a national education company that had a very high technology element, like uh, asynchronous online classes and, and uh, uh, question databases and, and uh, a lot of social media use. <laughs> so at that time, uh, when that company was acquired in 2009, that was right after the financial crisis. And the financial crisis really shook me up because I thought, wow, all of my friends out of Exeter and Brown and Columbia um, who are in Wall Street were wrecking the economy, it turns, <laughs> it, it, it turns out. Right. Uh, and so I, I thought about what that would mean for the uh, country long term, where we were having so many smart people leave Ohio, Michigan, Georgia, um, uh, Ohio, uh, to head to Wall Street and Silicon Valley um, and Boston, D.C. to a lesser extent, and L.A. Uh, and it was going to be this massive brain drain uh, from much of the country uh, that was not on the coasts for the most part. So in 2011, I left my job to start this organization, Venture for America, uh, to help train urban entrepreneurs in Detroit, Cleveland, Birmingham, uh, St. Louis, Baltimore, places I'd never been, honestly, uh -huh. <laughs> because you could tell most of my career took place on the coast, though Manhattan Prep ended up with 18 offices around the country, so I traveled a lot um, for that. Mm -hmm. But uh, at that time, and I wrote a book about this called Smart People Should Build Things, I became fixated on the fact that we had so much uh, human capital doing certain things in certain places and not enough um, uh, starting businesses around the country. Mm -hmm. And that was a direct result of watching you know, the, the economy crash, basically. 
Well, it, it was, and, and even if you look at my own experience, so you know, I, I you know, was good at school and uh, went to law school and then was plugged into Davis Polk and Wardwell, this high-end corporate um, law firm, and became the embodiment of a transaction cost, where they were going to pay me six figures to work on deal documents for some uh, giant acquisition. Uh, and that was my highest use. Like right. I, I thought to myself, I, this was a quote from the time, I said, this law firm's like a temple to the squandering of human potential. Hmm. Because you had some of the top educational products in our society doing scut work, essentially. And so if you can imagine me going through that experience and then spending six years training the analysts at McKinsey and Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley and seeing another version of the same thing where you had all of these talented humans who were almost getting beaten into submission and mm -hmm. being made into sort of lesser versions of themselves, highly paid lesser versions of themselves. Yeah. And then that set of activities contributes to the near collapse of our economy. So. Uh, after going through that for a decade, I thought, well, we need to do something that puts people in position to do something that's going to make them better human beings and would be better for our economy and society. And so the vision that I thought was the most compelling was starting businesses in Detroit and Cleveland and St. Louis and Baltimore. Uh, and so that's what I did between 2011 and 2017 was help create several thousand jobs in those markets. This may sound like a bit of an odd question, but what do you think it is about you that you saw something wrong and you actually did something about it? Because I find this now all the time, like when it comes to just anything that's happening in the country right now related to censorship or political correctness or how out of whack our political system is, just everything. It's like everyone feels that something's wrong. They may be focused on a different thing specifically, but very few people are willing to do anything about it. What do you think it is about you that you were like, I see what's wrong? Because you probably weren't your only colleague that was like, my, my potential's being squandered here, but people get the check and they just kind of suck it up. Do, do you ever think about that? Like, what is it about you? So I was 24, 25 at the law firm, uh, you know, during those unhappy five months. And I said, why am I doing this job? And then it was like, it must be for the money. So what do I do with the money? <laughs> And so then I went to Bloomingdale's and I bought my family some nice presents and then I gave them to them that, that weekend. And I was like, okay, this is nice. Is this enough for me to keep doing this job? Right, <laughs> like, right, like, right, definitely right. not. Uh, and so uh, I think in my case, um, and my, my wife now you know, finds this sometimes very annoying, um, but I, I have low regard for creature comforts. <laughs> like, I really just don't care. Right, right. You know, like, I'm perfectly happy with uh, janky street food. I'm we tried to offer you a lot of stuff in the green room. You, you wanted water. This so. man can't be bought. Yeah. Man, so. <laughs> uh, but but it's, it's just like these material things don't uh, make that much of a difference in the, just because of the way my utility curves are shaped. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds incredibly out of touch to say. It's like, oh, of course that dude thinks that. But, like, even as a young person, um, I just found myself caring a lot about certain things and less about others. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, in 2011, when I decided to start Venture for America, the part of it too, Dave, is that at, even at this point, so I, I'd sold a company to a public company, and I, I thought that what's wrecking our country was that we have so much talent and energy doing 
a handful of things in a handful of places and it needs to be doing all these other things. And I'd gone through that arc myself. I'd been a failed entrepreneur and I knew how brutal that was. And I thought if I could somehow form a pathway that would help support hundreds of younger versions of me and you to do something that would actually turn us into better versions of ourselves. I was like, this is like the best thing I could ever do. And I had this sense that if I busted my tail for um, five or six years, I could actually make it happen. Um, and I, I, at that point, knew that that wasn't true for everyone. So if it was true for me, then I should really fucking do it. Because if I don't, then like I'm shirking, yeah. uh, essentially. Um, because a lot of people could look up and say, oh, someone should do that, but it would not be realistic for them to quit their job and you know, uh, try and raise millions of dollars and, and uh, build it. Uh, but I thought I could. Um, and uh, it turns out I was right, so right. that's very exciting. It, it's sort of just like you, you were young and like it's good to be young because you do some crazy shit pretty much, right? This I is guess. true. Th th there was definitely some youthful yeah. uh, exuberance yeah. <laughs> baked into this time period. Yeah, it's uh, funny because you mentioned the, the crash in 2009 and it's like you were, you know, had friends that were working at these companies and all that. And I had I was a struggling stand-up at the time, so I had no money. I mean, I was scrounging around just to get on and look stage. look at you now. Look now, at you now. I'm on YouTube, man. I got Andrew Yang in here. We're doing all just right. Just so you know, camera, camera, this place is beautiful. <laughs> it really is. So, thank you. Support for The Rubin Report comes from our friends over at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home is so much more than a house, it's your own little slice of heaven. That's why when you find the perfect place for you and your family, getting a mortgage shouldn't get in the way. Imagine how it feels to have an award-winning team by your side through every step of the mortgage process. It's awesome and exactly what you get with Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Their team of mortgage experts is obsessed with finding a better way, which means that their number one goal is to make the home buying process smoother for you. Quicken Loans has helped millions of Americans achieve their dream of home ownership, and when you're ready to purchase the home of your dreams, they can help you too. Their team cares about getting you home. That's why J.D. Power has ranked Quicken Loans highest in customer satisfaction for primary mortgage origination nine years in a row and highest in mortgage servicing five years in a row. When you work with them, you get more than just a loan because Rocket Mortgage is more than just a lender. Get started online at rocketmortgage.com slash Rubin, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. For J.D. Power award information, visit jdpower.com. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Push button, get mortgage, and now back to the show. But I remember I had no money and I was working all these odd jobs and bartending and doing all this. I had nothing, I really had nothing. And I was struggling to pay the rent and all that. And I had a friend that worked at Lehman Brothers and he was rolling in dough, but he was miserable. And I remember when the crash came, I was like, oh, well, I didn't lose anything because I didn't have anything. But this guy lost his job and was freaking out and had been stressed out of his mind for the two years prior and warning that this thing was coming and all that. And I thought, there's some real, there's something about perspective here, you know? <laughs> so maybe, maybe it's good not to always have something is the point. Well, that's one of the fun things about entrepreneurship is that if you were to chart, um, and this is a crude measurement, let's just uh, uh, chart how much money I made in a given year. It would be like, eh, 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 eh. 
And and so it, it ends up, which is very different than your friend at Lehman Brothers, which is like, ah. and so if you're in like this mode, mm -hmm. then you start equilibrating to making lots of money, and you like uh, develop like an expensive lifestyle, and you have friends who have the same lifestyle. Um, but if if your income's like you know highly variable, then you end up. Uh, you know, not developing a super expensive lifestyle. I think that that's one reason why. Yeah. Um, I even see that now with me just because of the way YouTube rev is so out of whack, which it's just a portion of, of our revenue. But like on any given month, it could quite literally be five times what it is the month before. So just as a, for the, for the limited amount that I am a businessman, which I guess I've become, you have it's that. like, I know what the numbers coming in and going out are at least. And it's like, this is a, this is a tough way to to operate a business. Yeah, and so what you do because you know you're smart is you'll be like, hey, tell you what, like I'm actually gonna like ad adopt an expense line that's like toward the lower end <laughs> of this thing. Yeah. And so so that that whereas your uh, friend at Lehman, like if you get income from an employer, virtually no one <laughs> like can actually say, I'm gonna pretend I'm not making this much money. I'm gonna pretend right, right, I'm making right, this right. Just money. by your title, you, you're that's it. Yeah, you you know what you're being made. Okay, so so all of this happens. And when did you start thinking maybe kind of, you know, Run for politics, president? what the hell am I doing kind of thing? Well, all right. So, um, over, <coughs> so over my time at Venture for America, uh, the budget grows and grows. So I, I put in 120000 to seed the organization in 2011. I asked some rich friends, uh, do you love America? Um, and then some of them say, I love America, yeah. and then being like, prove it, yeah. like, put in, like, <laughs> put in, put in 10,000. And so, you know, raise 120 that way. And budget grows and grows to five or six million, um, train hundreds of young entrepreneurs, help create um, several thousand jobs, honored by the White House, uh, movie with an Oscar-winning filmmaker get, gets made about us, uh, you know, write a book. Um, and then I have the sinking feeling the whole time where I'm like, we're just scratching the surface of the magnitude of this problem, where now I compare it to pouring water into a bathtub that has a giant hole ripped in the bottom. Because while I was getting accolades and awards for creating several thousand jobs, uh, our economy shed four million manufacturing jobs that were centered in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, Missouri, these places I was working. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Donald Trump wins in 2016, and he wins because of the after aftermath of the automation of these jobs in the swing states. There's a straight line up between the adoption of industrial automation in a voting area and the movement towards Trump in that area. Mm -hmm. It's one of the strongest statistical correlations you can find. So, so strategically, it was very good what he did to win, right? To just keep saying to those people, I'm bringing the jobs back or something to that effect? Yeah. Uh, and w Whether it was true or not, but I'm just talking about in terms of like just pure politic of I want to win. Well, he got a ton of credit for just acknowledging the problem and the mm -hmm. pain. And even the folks that heard his solutions kind of knew that he wasn't going to like magically bring the jobs back. But they were, were just pleased that someone gave a shit. Mm -hmm. And then the Democratic response at the time was, uh, so he was like, you know, we're going to make America great again. And then the Democratic response was, America's already great. And then the people that were listening to Trump were like, no, things are not great. Uh, and in these communities, I was blown away by the disparities between Missouri and uh, Manhattan or uh, Detroit and San Francisco. Like where if you, have you done a lot of traveling in? in oh, this past year, I went to about 100 cities in the United States. So then I, you, then you may around. know if, yeah. you, if you've been around. Yeah. Because when you fly between uh, Detroit and San Francisco, you feel like you've traversed 
decades and dimensions and oh, ways yeah. of life. Well, it feels like we have many different countries within our country. Yes. You can use that. There you go. Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> you know, if I use that, we'll know where it came from. <laughs> when you throw it out of debate. But it is true. Yeah. It feels like we're many different countries. Uh, and so when Trump won, I took that as a giant red flag where I said, wow, like this is actually getting away from us much faster than anyone seems to, to believe that we're in the midst of the greatest economic and technological transformation in the history of the country. Because I spent six and a half years working with hundreds of startups around the country, and even if they're successful, they're not going to create jobs at the scale as what's being lost in retail, uh, trucking, call centers, fast food, uh, and accounting, bookkeeping, law. I mean, one of the jokes I tell is that I was a, a lawyer long enough to know that you can automate away a lot of that job. <laughs> so, so with all the uh, uh, AI uh, advancement that's coming around the corner, the stuff that got Donald Trump into office is just going to accelerate in a huge way. 30% of American malls are going to close in the next four years, and being a cashier is still the most common job in the country. Mm -hmm. And the average cashier is a 39-year-old woman making $10 an hour. So what is she going to do when the mall closes? I mean, it's not like another store is going to be hiring. And so this is what I saw in 2016, where I was trying to unpack the actual data as to how Trump won and why. And then I saw our country was not having any conversation about the economic transformation that we're in the midst of. Uh, instead, we're scapegoating immigrants. If you watch cable news, it's Russia, racism, Facebook, the FBI, Hillary Clinton. And it's like, yeah, all of that was there. Um, but the real driver is the fact that millions of Americans lost their manufacturing jobs. Millions of Americans will now lose their retail jobs. Uh, the call center jobs, the fast food jobs. And when it gets to trucking, it's going to be an epic disaster. Mm -hmm. Being a truck driver is the most common job in 29 states. There are 3.5 million truckers in this country, average age 49, 94% men. Uh, tens of thousands of them are ex-military. Average pays 46000 a year. It's one of the higher paid jobs for high school grads. Like, what is their next move going to be when the robot trucks come uh, in the next five to ten years? Yeah, so do you think part of the problem here, or part of the disconnect, let's say, was that while the manufacturing sector was sort of bottoming out, that the tech sector in its own way, just the way, the way we think of the tech sector, meaning Facebook, Google, Twitter, all these things, they were all kind of blowing up, and they were expanding and expanding and expanding. And then the media focuses on them. So it seems like there's a gajillion jobs and tech is going to solve everything and all of that. Yet that's actually not reality. Like there was just like this huge chasm between sort of the, the optics of it and the reality of it. Yeah, and certainly the media narratives are not helping any. But some numbers, so people get a sense, uh, only 8% of jobs in the U.S. are STEM and 92% are not. Is it realistic to try and train 92% to do the jobs that are currently being occupied by 8%? Mm -hmm. Probably not. Probably not. If you look, look at the success rates for federally funded retraining programs for uh, displaced manufacturing workers in the Midwest, 0 to 15% success rates. Is that going to be enough when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of workers? Almost certainly not. And so you never hear a politician say when they're saying, like, oh, we're going to educate and retrain Americans for the jobs of the future. Oh, by the way, we're shit terrible at that. <laughs> you know? it's like, but any uh, objective study, any independent study shows that we are indeed 
shit terrible at it. And so why are we talking about doing something that we were not able to do for the manufacturing workers? And I studied economics, so economic theory says we'd retrain all these people, but that's not how it's played out in real life. So you truly view right now, because of the way tech is changing us and sort of the speed with, it, with which it's changing us, you truly view this as a, as a unique sort of inflection point in, in human history, right? Yeah, we're in the midst of the greatest economic and technological transformation in the history of the world. What experts are calling the fourth industrial revolution. And I know you had Martin Ford on recently. Yeah. Um, so he and I agree on most of the uh, major themes of this. Uh, and the, the thing that has convinced me is that because of my work with Venture for America, I was invited to all of like the high-level design sessions and social innovation uh, conferences. And I got a sense as to what people are doing in this space. Um, and nothing anyone is doing is going to address the fundamental set of problems. Hey, Dave Rubin here. If you've been thinking about buying real gold and silver and want to learn about the different ways to do it, you should call my friends at Noble Gold and get the free gold and silver investment guide. This guide has been read by over 100,000 investors and provides all the easy steps on how to add gold and silver to your portfolio, IRA, or 401 rollover account. The timing is good as recently the chairman of JP Morgan has predicted a 40% deep correction in the stock market, so now might be the perfect time. We all know that the answer to instability in your investment portfolio is diversification. Adding metals to your IRA or 401k can help protect your nest egg. Go to noblegoldinvestments.com or dial pound 250 on your phone and say Noble Gold 40 to speak with an advisor and receive your free IRA gold and silver guide. Call pound 250 and say Noble Gold 40 now. Learn how you can take advantage of silver's historically low price by adding gold and silver to your IRA or 401k. Individual results may vary, so invest wisely. Call pound 250 now and say Noble Gold 40. Call pound 250 now and say Noble Gold 40. And now back to the show. Okay, so now, all of that being said, have you heard about this universal basic income thing? I have heard something about it. You that. have heard about this? All yes. right. Well, I guess then, can you define universal basic income for those who have no idea? I'm giving, I mean, this is a freaking softball, man. Here you go. Yes. Uh, universal basic income is a policy where every member of a society, let's say every U.S. citizen, gets a certain amount of money to meet your basic needs, no questions asked. So my proposal, the Freedom Dividend, would put $1,000 a month in the hands of every American adult starting at age 18 to do whatever you want. And that's universal basic income. It sounds dramatic now in 2019, but Thomas Paine was for it at the founding of the country. Martin Luther King championed it in the 1960s. Milton Friedman and a thousand economists signed a study saying this would be great for America, um, also in the 60s and 70s. It passed the US House of Rep Representatives twice in 1971 under Nixon. And one state has had a dividend for almost 40 years where everyone in Alaska now gets between one and $2,000 a year. So I know at first blush, everyone getting $1,000 a month sounds uh, very dramatic and almost too good to be true, but it actually is very, very deeply rooted in American thought. And when you say everyone, you mean the person that's, from someone that's unemployed to someone that is worth 20 million bucks. They're both getting that $1,000? Yep, that's right. Okay, now how are we gonna pay for this thing? Right? That has to be the next question. Yes. 
So, um, so first, it ends up costing a lot less than most people think, um, and there are a few reasons for this. Number one is that about half of Americans are already getting direct support from the government in some form. So my dividend would be universal, but it's opt-in, and if you opt-in, you forego benefits from certain existing programs. So the headline cost goes down a lot very quickly. Because so what could, so this is like someone that's, that's getting some other social welfare or something, and then if they choose to take the UBI, so like what type of thing would they lose? Like food stamps or like yeah, what, so what it's uh, it's full food stamps, uh, housing subsidies, uh, fuel subsidies, cash and cash like programs. We have about 120 welfare programs, most of which are cash or cash like. So this excludes uh, Medicaid, uh, but it would include food stamps and uh, most other welfare programs. Right. And can you can you split the difference on that? So could you say I'm going to only take 500 a month UBI and I'm going to take you know, 500, no. so you can't. So you have to pick one, basically. Yes. Yeah. And so I've talked to people who are on various welfare programs and they love the idea of getting $1,000 unconditional because they dislike the case manager, the reporting requirements, everything else. And so you can reduce the enrollments in our existing program significantly. Uh, and so, and it brings down the headline cost very quickly because if someone's already getting $700 in benefits, then the cost is $300 instead of 1000 do, do we have good accounting numbers on actually how much people are getting? Like, I'm going to guess that a certain amount of people, it may be one thing for food stamps, but when you talk about housing subsidies and things like that, that has to be way more. I mean, the, the one that I always use is that my sister and her husband live in New York City, struggling to get by. They both have full-time jobs, two kids. You can imagine how expensive schools are and just living in Manhattan and the rest yep. of it. And half of their building is market price and half is rent subsidized. And then what happens is, and I know you know this, is that generation after generation live in the same apartment then for like you know 400 bucks. And then my sister and her husband end up paying 4,000 bucks for a tiny two bedrooms, so that people, people basically just get locked in these programs, where if you were to say to the guy that's living in an apartment for 600 bucks, here's a thousand bucks, you gotta get going, nobody's gonna do it. You'd have to be an idiot to do it, basically. Well, I, I think, knowing what I know about New York and the um, subsidized rents, it's not a federal program, I don't believe, and so like their situation might be that they actually get the thousand bucks and then they, they, it, it's helpful to them. Mm -hmm. um, but in, in terms of the math, it ends up reducing the headline cost of this by hundreds of billions of dollars very, very quickly because people will either not opt in or if they do opt in, it costs a lot less than $1,000 a head. So that's reason number one where, it, where that reduces the cost from like a top line, let's call it $3 trillion a year, it goes down um, pretty quickly. The second big thing is that the money doesn't disappear. In our hands, it ends up getting circulated through the economy over and over again, what I call the trickle-up economy. Uh, and so if you see that it would end up increasing consumer buying power and the size of the economy by about uh, 10 to 12%, we would generate hundreds of billions in new tax revenue just on the basis of more economic activity in our society. We'd also save hundreds of billions on things like incarceration, homelessness services, emergency room health care and things that we're already spending about a trillion on. Meaning because people are going to use that money for those things? Uh, either that or we have to we get to spend less on it. Um, so one of the examples that, and this is going to sound very politician-y, so I apologize, but I, I was in New Hampshire uh, and uh, corrections officer in New Hampshire said we should pay people to stay out of jail. Uh, because you got to give me their name and tell me you put your, their arm around them and the whole, you know, I really ham that. it up for a positive. <laughs> yeah, a positive. I, really Come on, I was man. like, I was there. And, um, and, and so 
we, we think we're saving money, but we end up spending the money on the back end anyway. If someone ends up falling through the cracks and they land in our institutions, our institutions are incredibly expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, and at least one estimate was that if you reduce poverty in this country, you would increase our GDP by $700 billion just on the basis of higher graduation rates, um, better physical health, and better mental health. So we're going to get back a lot of the money. But the big change we need to make to, to pay for this dividend is that right now, Amazon, trillion dollar tech company, paid zero in federal taxes last year. Mm -hmm. Netflix, zero in federal taxes, less than you did on this awesome operation. <laughs> yeah. um, and you know Amazon's investing billions in AI. It's going to be one of the mega winners from uh, the fourth industrial revolution. So we need to have a mechanism where the American people actually get some of that. Uh, and so. Uh, my big proposal is that we have to join every other advanced economy in the world and have a value-added tax that, that then gets the American public a tiny slice of every Amazon sale, every Google search, every Facebook ad, every robot truck mile. And because our economy is now so vast at $20 trillion, even a mild value-added tax generates over $800 billion in new revenue. So that, plus the savings from existing programs, plus the economic growth, uh, plus the value gains enough to pay for a dividend of $1,000 a month. So I know that a certain percentage of my audience, they know that generally I'm a, I'm a small government guy, or I want, it to be, I want it to be as small as it can be to function, as, as a general rule. So it could be, it could be streamlined enough. I, I want it to exist well enough so that things are working without all of the fat and all of the pork and all of the rest of it. Um, but So some of my alarms go off here when, because of the idea of that this would be federal in nature, so that a thousand bucks if you live in, say, Los Angeles, you get, you get next to nothing. Thousand bucks if you live maybe in uh, you know somewhere in the middle of the country, you're going to get a lot more. Is there any way you can compensate for any of that, or you th or is that not even worth thinking about in your estimation? Or well, there are, there are a few reasons why it's good. To, it's a good idea to keep it uniform. Uh, number one is that there are other reasons why people live in LA. Often, uh, not just the weather, but but <laughs> that's, access that's to pretty certain, much it. Yeah, but access to certain economic opportunities. So you're making a trade-off already. And uh, it's also very hard to administer because the fact is, if you're getting paid more to live in an expensive place, a lot of people would live <laughs> in an expensive place and they'd like sneak off and right. you know spend the money someplace cheaper. So um, it, it's much cleaner for everyone to make it uniform. It also ends up fueling mobility in both directions because at least some people might feel like, hey, if I leave LA and go, uh, you know, go to Arizona, like I can actually live much better. Uh, you know, it's like it, it will help balance things out. Mm -hmm. What, what do you say just to the general idea, the, sort of, I guess, the, the philosophical idea that if you just keep giving people things, that eventually they just start doing less for themselves? That a thousand bucks, like, yeah, maybe there's some place in the country that you could live, then you could play video games all day and smoke pot all day and, and not really do much, and that we're going to sort of, we're going to cushion people's ability to, to not just get up and get going. Well, not so, that people want that, but that just human nature is, oh, I start getting something and I can just kind of ease up a little bit. So there are, there are three things I would say. First, I agree with your vision of government. And the great thing about this is that this actually does not grow the federal bureaucracy. What we all hate is when you have money just flow up to the pipes and then disappear and then you know you never see it again and you don't know what the hell happened. Mm -hmm. um, this actually puts the economic resources back in our hands. It's one of the reasons why the only state that's done this is Alaska, which is a deep red conservative state passed by a Republican governor. 
and it's wildly popular there. Like the dividends, everyone's favorite thing about what the government does, because it's not a giant government program. It's actually almost cost-free to administer and mm -hmm. just puts money right into our hands. So I agree with your vision of government. Is that the last thing I want is like an ar a new army of bureaucrats running around? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but, but do you fear that even even if everything you've said is is completely on point, that any time you just the way that the system works, at least now, that any time you try to put in a giant federal program that the bureaucrats and just that middle management part of the government will figure out ways. Like you could be like, oh, it's real easy, guys. We got 320 million people in the country. Everyone's getting a thousand bucks. The math works out. It's like, it's all good. But that then just the process of how government works will create all sorts of other problems. Well, if you look at the way they do it in Alaska, it's actually very lightweight. Like as long as they can prove you're an Alaskan resident, you're there. It's like, this is how many people you are. Like they have a very, very low uh, level um, administrative burden, mm -hmm. let's say. So as long as you can pull that off, which in my opinion, like this is where we have to go because, uh, <coughs> because as the economy is transforming, uh, and so, so number one, uh, I agree with your vision of, of small government if we can achieve it. And, and so I'm gonna come back to it with number three. Yeah. And number two is, uh, number two is the biggest misconception about this is that it's somehow going to reduce work. And what I mean by this is you put this money into our hands, it has a, first it creates two million new jobs immediately in the economy. Uh, because just more economic activity, the smoothie shop hires someone, the mechanic needs a, you know, a, an assistant, like on and on through the economy. So Basically it just people have more expendable income, more shopping occurs. Yeah. Pretty much the easiest way to say that. Right? Yes. Okay. Uh, the other thing though that it does, it ends up fueling a lot of the work that right now our, mar our market does not recognize. Um, so that's some of the stuff that you've done throughout your career, like arts, creativity, entrepreneurship, like a lot of that stuff doesn't get recognized by the market till um, you become, you know, frankly, like yeah, somewhat yeah. successful. Um, but also work like my wife does. My wife's at home with our two boys, one of whom is autistic, and the market values her work at zero, even though it's incredibly hard and incredibly important. So it's not that putting this money into our hands somehow makes us work less. It creates conventional work. It ends up um, also uh, fueling the sort of work that we want to do. So that, that's uh, number two. And then number three is this notion of what's happening in our economy. If you look around at the fact that suicides and drug overdoses have overtaken vehicle deaths for the first time in American history, our life expectancy has declined for the last three years, almost unheard of in a developed country. Mm. You know the last time our life expectancy declined three years in a row? I guess it was probably like in the late 1920s, something like that? Yeah, it was the Spanish flu of 1918. It's like where well, that killed millions of people. Oh. Uh, and so, and this buzzsaw is just going to accelerate. Uh, when AI comes in and starts getting rid of call center workers and uh, bookkeepers and accounts and the rest of it. Um, and so when you're facing a set of changes that, that's this mammoth, putting cash into people's hands is actually the most lightweight thing you can do. Mm -hmm. Some of the other proposals that are out there are the ones that we must avoid, which are things like a, like a jobs guarantee or like creating like a whole new array of, uh, of subsistence jobs for so, so that's Americans a, to So that's survive. a massive difference you have than some of the other Democratic candidates, right? Because uh, Bernie and I think Elizabeth Warren and a couple others are talking about a federal jobs guarantee, which, yeah. which to me, again, as, a, as a basically a small government guy, that sounds horrible to me. Like that, that sounds like indentured servitude to me. Yes, 
uh, one of the things is, it's like, why not just get everyone gray overalls while you're at it? Yeah, uh, <laughs> right. You know? like, give, us the, give us the uniform and we'll flip widgets all day and that's it. Yeah, and so I try and point out obvious things. It's like, hey, what if someone doesn't like the job they have? What if they're bad at it? What if they don't like their boss? What if their boss doesn't like them? What if the job actually, like, you know, turns out uh, you don't need it after a while? Like, if you're literally dependent upon a government job to survive and, like, actually have food on the table, then all of those things become existential. Uh, and you end up creating a whole new army of bureaucrats to administer this like uh, massive jobs program. So I'm for infrastructure uh, uh, creating jobs, like because those are jobs you know you need. We need to rebuild the infrastructure. But starting out saying we're going to guarantee everyone a job is exactly what we have to avoid. So so when they say that, when when you hear them say that, do you honestly think that they believe that is the right thing to? Or, or even a feasible thing to do, or that they're just saying, because it sounds, if you're not really thinking about these issues that hard, to me, saying free everything sounds good. It all sounds good. Free college, free this, free job, you know, all of these things. Just if you're not thinking, it's just like, oh, great, free, why not? Let's do it. If you're young and you haven't really well, put the, the acumen in to, to figure out what these things mean. One of the dangers is that a lot of these politicians have never actually run a business, worked in a business, understand what the mechanics of these organizations look like on the ground. Um, they're just lurching from press release to fundraiser to cable news hit, and they don't understand what a lived reality would be for a person who has to show up and like check in for their uh, their McJob. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, yeah. um, and the institutionalization of this thinking it is sincere. Like it's not like if you poke the person who's for federal jobs guarantee, they're like, ah, I was just kidding. No, no, I mean, like they actually feel that. Uh, and well, they feel it, right, but I guess feeling it and knowing are two different things. Well, right? I mean, they, they believe it. Let's put it that way. Okay. They're sincere in their belief. Uh, and, and so if you buy that we're in the midst of the greatest economic transformation in the history of the world, which we are, and then in my mind you wind up with like a couple of major uh, models to try and um, respond to it. And my model is put economic buying power into the hands of every adult as fast as possible and help us rebuild our own communities, our own lives, our own families, and like find new forms of work that we find fulfilling and purposeful. The other model, in my opinion, is the government trying to figure out what sort of work we find meaningful and valuable and purposeful. Yeah. And this, to me, is what we must avoid at all costs. Right, well, it's also a self-perpetuating thing, right? Because then the government always has to grow. We always have more people. We will always need more jobs. So they will always keep bringing more and more people into the system. Yeah, and, and to give you a sense of the immediacy of this, as we're sitting here together in year 10 of an expansion, the US labor force participation rate is close to a multi-decade low of 63%. Uh, the same levels as Ecuador and Costa Rica. Wait, say that again, 63% are... of, of working age Americans are presently in the workforce. Hmm. So uh, when we hear this thing about uh, uh, job... Headline uh, unemployment. Yeah, yeah, that unemployment is at an all-time low or this type of thing. That doesn't factor in that people just have checked out, right? Is yes. that, that's basically what you're getting to? Yeah, and if you remember candidate Trump in 2015, he was like, oh, this headline unemployment number is fake news, it's bunk, 95 million Americans out of the workforce. Uh, uh, and now he's in office and he's like, oh, like, it's great. He was right the first time because if you leave the workforce, you're not calculated into the headline unemployment number. It also doesn't include the fact that 94% of the new jobs created since 2005 are temporary gig or contract jobs. It doesn't include the fact that 44% of recent college graduates are underemployed in a job that uh, doesn't require a degree. So the headline unemployment number is at best misleading and incomplete, at worst, uh, bullshit. Like it's, it's somewhere in, in that range. Right, so what, what about, 
I think a, cer- some, a certain set of people would basically say, well, all right, some of, some of this is making sense, and I can see why it would get rid of some of the bureaucracy, and you're, not, you're doing a governmental program, but not totally expanding the government. But why not just do it for people under, say, $50,000, so that you don't need to give it to the guy that's making 75000 that lives in Kansas City who's got a decent life, uh, but why not just give it to the people fifty thousand? You know, whatever the whatever the number whatever you the might come up, come up with. Sure, there there are a few reasons. So one of the reasons why it's so wildly popular in Alaska is that it's universal. So it's not like oh, uh, rich Alaskans don't get it, poor Alaskans do. It's just like no, you live here. It's a right of citizenship. You get your dividend. And so by making it so it's not a rich to poor transfer, you destigmatize it, you universalize it, and then you make it more politically popular because it's just something that we all get as citizens and owners and shareholders of the richest, most advanced country in the history of the world. Number two, you get rid of any incentive to underreport your income uh, or to uh, have monitoring requirements. Let's say I'm married to someone who's not working. Um, and then maybe we could be like, hey, how about we file separately? And then you make uh, nothing, and then you can get the dividend. And like, so basically, like all this it removes the cliff situation where you'd actually want to earn less, right? So or this, this is one less, of the things right. that I've struggled with the most about this, about the general idea, not the way you were laying it out. But that I, I don't like things that de-incentivize people to make more. And I, can, you know, you mentioned this thing before about you could struggle for a long time, and then suddenly you're making more. And it's like last year I paid more in taxes than I had ever made in my entire life before that. And like that, so I don't like the idea that the more work you do, the more value you bring, the more you sort of get punished. You know? Yeah, and, and that's one of the problems with our current welfare programs. Like, uh, and the extreme examples, uh, a friend of mine, his sister is on disability. Um, she was afraid to volunteer uh, at a nonprofit because she was afraid someone would say you're healthy and then take away her, her benefits. I mean, what a terrible incentive system yeah. that is. Um, but most welfare programs are constructed such that if you flourish, then you get less. Whereas if you have a dividend that's universal, you know, you do nothing, you get the dividend, you do something, you get the dividend, then like your incentive is actually to do something. <laughs> so wh- why not just blow apart? So th- I think the best libertarian argument that I've heard for UBI is that basically if you want to do UBI, it's got the right idea, why not just blow apart the social safety net as is, Take because we know it's just a boondoggle of middle management nonsense with all the whacked out uh, incentives. incentives that you're talking about. Why not just take all of that money, which I, do we even know how much money is actually put into these things? Uh, of course. So how, how much right now? Um, 600 billion, give or take. <laughs> give or take. All right, so why not take the 600 billion that are on programs that we know are creating as many problems probably as they're fixing, if not more, and then do it that way? Like, do you think, because it almost feels like it's a, like a little bit of a stopgap that you'd still have to get to that problem eventually? Well, well that's the beauty of this, um, the freedom dividend proposal, is that you have this 600 billion or so, and then you're saying, hey, guess what? Like, it's now a new right of citizenship, everyone gets it. And then what's gonna happen is you're gonna dramatically reduce the enrollment in these programs very, very quickly, because a lot of people will be like, I prefer the cash. And then, uh, then this new incoming population uh, would just opt for the dividend and then never end up on these welfare programs. So you'd end up uh, shrinking the enrollments over time in the way you describe. You just wouldn't do it all at once because you know there are a lot of people in very distinct situations. Um, and this is actually much more politically uh, feasible and popular than going and trying to tear these programs up and, and uh, you know from from the the roots up. Yeah. Are, are you worried though that the that because states have different things related to social programs that, I mean, we sort of addressed this already, but just that different states will deal with it so differently uh, in terms of how they're giving benefits off UBI 
that it just is going to create this weird, we may have a gajillion people moving to one state and leaving another state or the rest of it, or you just think that that's... Well, that's one reason why having uniform benefits, because right now there are block grants that go to various states and the states do different things with it, as you're suggesting, mm -hmm. and those are the programs that would be um, swapped out for UBI, so the more people that opt into UBI, then uh, the, the, the like smaller those grants would be. So parallel to all of this, one of the things that we hear the Democrats always talking about is $15 minimum wage. I actually don't know your policy on that. Well, <coughs> I'm for the spirit that if you're working full time, you should not be poor. But if you were to increase the minimum wage to $15, it would hasten the automation of all these fast food jobs that pay $9. There are all these everywhere. Yes. iPad. That's it. There are, there are all these hardware stores and like Main Street retailers that are just scraping by that are paying people nine, ten bucks an hour. You take that up to fifteen bucks an hour, they're hundred percent gonna cut shifts, cut workers. It's much better just to give everyone a thousand bucks a month. It's an effective raise of $6 an hour for anyone who's working full time. It doesn't come out of the pockets of small businesses. It recognizes uh, parents and caregivers and nurturers that the minimum wage does not touch. Um, and it's actually better for small business because is that hardware store going to be busier if everyone has money? Yes. And so instead of taking it out of this hardware store, and this is one thing that drives me nuts about the left. I mean, I've run a small company. It's like, like sometimes people imagine that like every business just must be somehow made of money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, and it's totally not the case, particularly in this era of mega consolidation, where you have these giant companies just coming and running amok. Like they're made of money, sure, but it's like the average like uh, independent business made of money such that you can just say, hey, pay everyone 15 bucks an hour and it's not gonna have any effect what, on you. What happened there, that, that disconnect in the left now where they, they do this with this $15 minimum wage? Because I agree, they sort of think that everything is equal so that my small business where we have you know five full-timers, let's say, and five part-timers is, is equal to Amazon, which they're, they're also not thrilled with Amazon. They have too many employees, I maybe have too few employees. Like There's always some weird number. Maybe if I had 27 employees, it's the exact amount that's right. But I know, even right now, we're hiring interns, but we're paying them because I don't want people to work for me for yeah. free. I want, to, I mean, I, I want I, them I, sure. to feel good about what they're doing, you know yes. what I mean? And I want them to feel incentivized and all those things. Um, but, but that concept that you just hit on there, how do we break through to that? Because it seems so obvious to me. You can't tell a, a guy that's got a little business just forget me, just take some YouTuber who's got one employee and wants to bring on someone else. Now there's some kid that really wants to learn YouTube. And it's like, he'd probably work for free, but I want to give him $8 an hour. To me, there's nothing wrong with that, but they would literally force you to not hire the guy. Yeah, um, uh, and so that's, again, why I think this freedom dividend is so superior because- But what do you think they're thinking? I, I got what you're thinking now, but what do you, like truly, this, this is the disconnect that I can't, figure out, like, do they actually think they're doing the right thing, or does it just sound easy, so you just say it, $15 minimum wage, of course, why not? Well, I, yeah, uh, so I think many people have come of age in a time when uh, capitalism has become so corrupt and extreme that they are deeply skeptical of businesses acting morally, which that's legitimate. It's like a lot of businesses are doing very messed up things. Uh, and so they're taking from that, it's like, oh, these businesses are systematically exploiting their workers when they have ample resource to do so. And so they're imagining that all businesses are like Amazon, they have ample resources. Um, and it's in part because they haven't worked in like a lot of different settings where they would understand the distinctions between different types of employers. Yeah. So you're giving them the benefit of the doubt. I think. Well, you know, it's like, I mean, the intention, the spirit is positive. It's like, do I think that people who are working full time should not be, you know, like uh, scraping to just 
get by. It's like, sure, right. you know? But is that also part of the disconnect that you, because everyone always brings this to fast food jobs when they frame this argument. They say $15 an hour because the average person who at a fast food joint can't live on a full-time wage. And it's like, but that actually, except if you're a manager, say at McDonald's or something like that, that shouldn't be your full-time job. There's another layer of an economic problem there, right? Yeah, yeah, there is. And McDonald's is rolling out self-serve kiosks in every location in the country by, by 2020, uh, right now with the wage the way it is. So it's not like, I mean, automation is going to come even if you do keep that. that right, right. <laughs> that you could probably, right. Even if you lowered it, actually, you could have the government come in and say, we have to pay you less and they'd still be doing it, right? Yeah. And then the question, if you're the government, is like, what is my intention? Like, is it that, like, no, you have to preserve that Mick job? It's like, well, how about we just automate that job? And then, <laughs> then the question is, what is that person doing instead? And so th there is this really important uh, evolution that we need to undergo as a society, which is to say, look, the market right now is a highly imperfect determinant of what jobs we should be doing. So if you take these people who are working in, in fast food restaurants, and these jobs get automated away, like in my mind, they should be automated away. And trying to preserve those jobs is not where we should be going. But there's also this massive uh, gap as to what the jobs of the future will look like. Mm -hmm. It's one reason why the freedom dividend is so important, because if you have a town of 10,000 adults in Missouri, and then you put $10 million more into their hands, then you end up creating not just more jobs in the main street, but you also end up supercharging their uh, religious organizations, their nonprofits, their community organizations. You create different forms of opportunities for people. Uh, and that is, to me, the generational challenge we're in the midst of, is trying to figure out what the jobs of the future look like when the market is going to try and zero out more and more Americans very quickly. Do you consider yourself a progressive, actually? Because it's interesting, because you said the thing about slim government, and I get it that partly what you're doing with UBI is that you want a simplistic, a relatively simplistic answer to a complex problem because you don't want the government to grow. But so often, every policy, and we've talked about some of them here, with $15 minimum wage and guaranteed federal job and the rest of it, that progressives come out with are just expansion of government. So do you do you consider yourself just an old school liberal? Do you consider yourself a progressive? Is there some overlap on that <laughs> yeah, it, or something it's, else? It's, it's a, like I consider myself a progressive because like, I, I think like I, you know, I'm pro-choice, uh, I'm pro-gay rights and gay marriage, like I'm, I'm pro-gun safety, like uh, things that I associate with progressive values and vision, like I you know, um, line up on. Um, we'll get to all those. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think for me, the challenge is that I don't think that government is necessarily the uh, vessel to achieve every goal. Uh, and I believe more in people than I believe in uh, government as a problem solving force. Yeah. So that, to me, that's an old school liberal. Which, yeah, is, yeah, which, strikes, me, take it. which strikes me as, as different prog from progressive in that they're always trying to find governmental answers to things. So what, what I think is that government is very bad at many, many things. Um, and it's good at some things. And so we need to lean into the things it's good at. Yeah. So what, what are the things it's good at? Well, one thing it's really excellent at is sending large numbers of checks to large numbers of people promptly and reliably every month. <laughs> That's like a core competence. So we just lean into that. Right. You may not want, see, that's where my libertarian bell goes off, and it's like, oh, the best thing the government can do is give people stuff. And it's like, even well, if they're good at getting the check delivered, like, you know, the, the check we got a bigger problem, you know what I mean? Well, well, part of it, and here's the argument I'd make, is that it's our stuff. You know what I mean? It's like our wealth. We're like, we're the owners, we're the shareholders. It's not that the government's like giving me stuff that's not mine. Mm -hmm. You know, like I'm, I'm an owner of the richest, most advanced 
country in the history of the world. We're up to 20 trillion in uh, GDP, and we can easily afford a thousand dollar dividend. And if a company does that, it's just good management. Like, you know, no one gets mad at Verizon when they're like, hey, we're taking the dividend up. It's like, what are you giving these shareholders, like, money? It's just considered good, uh, good corporate management, and it's good uh, management of a society. So I know you've explained a little bit of how you pay for some of this stuff, but how does this affect taxes in general at so, the federal level? I mean, um, uh, to me, we have to go where the money is, and the money is... Uh, in the economic activities of companies like Amazon, particularly as technology just keeps on uh, getting more and more efficient and powerful. Um, do I think that our current tax rate should be more progressive? Like I do. Um, but I, I also try and convince people, it's like, look, Jeff Bezos post-divorce is worth like $120 billion or whatnot. You can take his income tax rate to whatever you want and he's not going to end up paying any significant proportion of that 120 billion <laughs> because most of it is an Amazon stock. Mm -hmm. He's too smart to have a taxable event. <laughs> so like income tax is not the way you actually balance things out. So that also puts you really at odds with a lot of the mainstream Democrats, right? Because they seem to want to put the progressive tax to make sure that these billionaires don't exist. Or like if you look at AOC's Green Deal, it was like we're going to tax the hell out of the billionaires. But then at the same time, she's always telling you how evil billionaires are. So there's an odd thing. It's like, we need the billionaires to pay for this thing, even though we know we can't actually pay for it. But then also they're evil and we have to get rid of them. Well, so one, I definitely don't think that billionaires are intrinsically evil. I mean, they're the natural byproducts of uh, this economic system that we've had in place for years and years. Um, and, and two, like again, I'm for a more progressive set of tax rates. Uh, because we're anomalously low uh, relative to our own history in other developed countries. Um, but I don't see that as the actual way to get the resources we need to do some of these things. Mm -hmm. What about a flat tax? Why not just flat tax the whole thing? 15% for everybody, lowest 50 grand and under, you get nothing. You, no taxes, you're good to go. And then everyone else just pays the same. And we, and we go from there. Well, one thing I will say is that if you were to, and one reason I love the value-added tax so much and that every other country has it, um, you don't want to tax things that you're trying to encourage. And I want to encourage uh, jobs and labor in every situation. So over time, I would love it if we get off of the taxation of labor mm -hmm. income. So payroll tax. Yeah, like that stuff actually is the opposite of what you want. Because you want people to work more and you want more people to hire folks. Um, so one of the reasons I why feel yeah as a, as a small businessman I feel it right like yeah. I'm paying the payroll tax I would love to be hiring more people right now yes and the biggest burden on you is healthcare you know it's like I've been an employer and guess what like if you like put me in a position where my incentives are to make everyone a temp and that if I hire someone full time then I'm, I'm it's going to take my cost of hiring that person up 20% then I'm going to hire fewer people can I just pat myself on the back in front of a presidential candidate for a second sure. <laughs> I pay 100% of my employees' health and dental. Because I, I, I just view it as I want people to feel good about working here because I know if, if they're happy and healthy and the rest of it, like it, to me it's self-preservation. It's like if they're happy and healthy, they want to work here, feel rewarded, they're going to do better work. It's simple I'll, as that. I'll say, Dave, I did the same thing when I was in your boat for the same reasons, but I will say that our incentives were to go a different direction, particularly if you end up employing well, you know, I, dozens or I can already see that as we're expanding. It's like, I, I don't think this will be sustainable over the next version and the next version. I was in the same boat. It's like you have a small team, you're like, sure, I'm gonna pay for you all. 
and then the team grows and you're like, wait a minute, like, uh, do these numbers work out? And the worst part is you make the decision and then your healthcare costs just keep uh, getting dialed up and up every mm -hmm. year at several times the cost of inflation. And what it does, it discourages hiring growth. Um, so payroll taxes, the opposite of what you'd want. You'd want to somehow like get that off of the backs of both the, the business and the worker. But our current healthcare system, also the opposite of what you'd want. is like the last thing you want to do is make it harder to hire people, harder to change jobs, harder to start businesses. And that's what our current healthcare system does. Okay, so let's, let's shift to healthcare actually. So you're for Medicare for all. Yeah. Um, so first off, let's just do the 101 on that. Like what does that actually mean in, in your estimation? So that's uh, government-provided health care. So Medicare right now kicks in at an advanced age. Uh, and so Medicare for all generally means that you lower the eligibility age and you make Medicare available to, um, in my case, all Americans. Where does private insurance come in on that? Because I can get on board the basic idea of this. Again, it's a struggle for me as a, as a limited government guy. It's just like a hard hurdle for me to get over. Um, but I can sort of get there intellectually. The part that's now been scaring me is that some of the Democratic nominees are literally talking about getting rid of private health care altogether. And to me, it's like, why would you obliterate the marketplace? I get it. You want to try to give something to everybody. Whether that would work or not, we can get into that. But you don't have to blow apart all of private insurance, too, which creates competition and ingenuity and all that. Yeah, so I, I am with you in that I am not trying to outlaw or eliminate private insurance. I'm trying to provide blanket coverage to Americans uh, and we can do it. Uh, the, one of the reasons why I'm confident we can do it is because we're already spending 18% of GDP on a highly inefficient <laughs> healthcare system that's also providing massive profits to private insurance companies and drug companies. Like, like the levels of, uh, uh, of expense are staggering. Like mm -hmm. we're spending twice as much as other countries to worse results. Uh, and so we can make coverage much, much more. I'll give you one basic example. We don't even negotiate drug prices. Like, can you imagine that? <laughs> like, you know, it's like these drug companies are like, we're gonna charge you this. I'm like, all right. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, like, but, but is the problem then if you hand that, if you expand Medicare, well now there's less incentive for them to negotiate those prices. Or, or you're saying you basically force them to do it. You force them to do it. And so, so that you can get drug prices lower very, very quickly. Uh, you can like get access up and cost down uh, very, very quickly, but I would not get rid of private insurance for some of the reasons why, um, why you, you think that having competitive markets and uh, incentives to innovate, um, I agree with you. And this is America. You know you're gonna end up with some uh, gold-plated concierge version. <laughs> right, and, and you should. I mean, if you have the money to do it, why should you not be able to buy into those things? But there are, I'm, not, I'm actually not totally sure. I think it was Bernie who said no more private insurance. Yeah. And that, uh, that strikes me as just deeply dangerous, actually. I, I don't... Well, it strikes me as anti-American, actually, because you should be allowed to buy... Why could you not buy extra insurance if you want? Yeah, this is true. Well, uh, I agree with you that there's a place for private insurance in the private market. And uh, to me, it, like it, in America, it would just be unfathomable to me that there would not be some... Uh, something available for people that wanted to buy it. Yeah, so you mentioned the, the uh, profits that these companies are making. Um, it, should there be a limit on what they can make? So, right, like, why not just let them make whatever they want and... So I'll, I'll give, I was talking to a, a friend of mine who's uh, an investor in public companies. And she said she has never seen profit margins <laughs> wow. like this in uh, the device companies, drug companies. 
um, some of the private insurers. She said that she actually started shorting those businesses because she said there is no way this can continue. She said it's out of whack with anything she's seen in any, any companies ever. So that gives you a sense of just how extreme the profiteering is right now. Uh, it's, it's completely out of control. Uh, what do you think about quality of service? If you, if ever, so now everyone has Medicare, and now we know that there's just going to be more government paperwork. And I, and I know actually through technology, and you, we referenced this an hour ago, that you might be able to clean up some of the mess and get some of the paperwork off. But even right now, I know with Obamacare, I have a good friend who's a doctor, and it really, it really challenged his practice almost to the point where he wanted to get out because he was spending more time on paperwork than on you know working directly. And that's something I, I, I want to help doctors with. I have, I'm Asian, so I have a lot of doctor friends. Yeah. <laughs> Are you Asian? <laughs> yeah, you noticed that. Um, so uh, we have to lighten their bureaucratic load. Uh, and the last thing I'd want is to increase it on doctors, because they need to spend more time actually caring for patients and less time uh, dealing with paperwork and the rest of it. So, so I feel ha- terrible. So how do them. you actually do that? Because once you now have made a federal program bigger, I mean, I think you can see a sort of theme in the way I think about these things. Like, once you make the federal program bigger, that all the bureaucrats get in, and now more paperwork and more paperwork and more paperwork, and there's less competition, so they have less chance to go somewhere else and <laughs> so, do, do what they want to do. So, so, so here's what, what yeah. I, I think um, I have a different set of experiences on, is that yeah. um, it's not necessarily the case that dealing with the government on this one uh, is higher paperwork than dealing with private insurance. Because I've I've worked in the industry and private insurance has you know like also like a, a lot of administrative hurdles, and the the trick is though that uh, if you are a practice you're dealing with maybe half a dozen different private uh, and maybe not half a dozen maybe like several of these private insurers. So it is conceivable. And I know this is very counterintuitive, but it's conceivable <laughs> that, that having this. Uh, um, this expanded government coverage would actually reduce paperwork on the average medical practice. Yeah. All right. I guess conceivable. Conceivable. That's a that's a pretty rare word for a politician to use. Uh, but I'm, I'm with. But I'm certainly with you on the goal. Mm-hmm. And and so that the three things. That, so I've been looking at what's making Americans unhappy, uh, and there are three things that are making us unhappy in terms of our cost structures. Number one is healthcare, number two is education, and number three is housing. And so to me, any competent administration has to try and attack those sources of, really at this point you could call it even hyperinflation, because mm-hmm. um, education and healthcare have skyrocketed relative to any other consumer product in cost. So before we get into some of those, those specific issues, philosophically, how do you decide what the federal government should do versus what state governments should do. So I understand your argument of why UBI should be a federal program, but just generally, how do you think about those things? Well, uh, to me, we're at a point now where our government has been uh, decades behind the curve for a long time. And you can see it in sort of this increased desperation in the American people. <laughs> we're looking around being like, I mean, so many Americans have just completely given up at, on government as like a, you know, um, a problem-solving force in our lives. Yeah, yeah. Most of us are like, I'm just going to avoid government if at all possible. Uh, I get it. I mean, I'm there too. I hear you. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm there too. Yeah. So uh, I'll give you a sense of my vision for this. Um, if you were a business and you were getting hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue from your customers uh, every year, um, you'd probably thank them. You'd probably try and make that process easier, and you might even celebrate it. So uh, I would turn tax day into a national holiday. I would call it Revenue Day, <laughs> I would, and I would autofill our taxes because that's actually very straightforward to do based upon um, previous filings and public info for <coughs> like you know 88% of us. 
<coughs> and then I'd have an election where you could choose where to give the last percent of your taxes and then get a thank you video from that part of the government. Mm -hmm. And then just get a thank you video generally. Just like This is like to me a vision of like a competent government that doesn't treat us like crap. So basically some portion at the end of your taxes where you could go, well, I don't want to give you know, you're given, you're given whatever you're given, I don't want that much to go to military, let's say, I'm gonna give more towards, you know, helping homeless people or something you like would that. Choose so you have your a little favorite. more of a discretion. Yeah, you'd feel like you have some agency in it. Um, and then you'd get like, oh, and then, and then the following year maybe, you'd get like a report being like, hey, here's where uh, your, your, your money went. And this might like marginally improve our attitude towards our government. Like, would it turn us all like totally into like, you know, big fans of the government? Like, no. But um, would it make us feel like, okay, at least they're trying? Yeah. <laughs> you know, at least you like you you had like a cool video with, um, you know, Oprah and The Rock being like, thanks. <laughs> so this is all branding, is. really. This is your, your PR party who comes in and it's like. Well, th this is just to me, just like business 101. It's like try and treat your customers not like crap. <laughs> yeah. So, um, <clears throat> uh, so that's th that's to me like a rudimentary step you would take. Um, to me, the federal government should be trying to solve the big problems. And so, what are the big problems? Uh, it's automation of jobs. It's climate change. Uh, it's infrastructure. It's things that states and cities don't have the scale for. And about uh, the majority of our states have balanced budget amendments, which means they can't actually make giant. Uh, commitments, which is not a terrible thing, but it just goes to show that if there are going to be any big bets on the future of our society and our way of life, it's going to have to come from the federal government. Okay, so let's shift with that. With that in mind, let's shift to uh, to education. I, again, small government guy, but I, I am the function of. I've only gone to private schools my entire life: elementary school, junior high, high school. I went to State University of New York at Binghamton. I was a poli sci major. They must have done something right through that. So I do believe that that is one of the functions of the government. Uh, that being said, we're obviously throwing tons of money into education, and it's seemingly at a point where we're seeing less and less results because of that. Get us out of this problem. All right. So the first thing uh, is that studies have shown that 70 to 75% of kids' academic performance is determined by out-of-school factors. So that's parental time, number of words read to the child when they're young, uh, parental income, stress levels in the house, type of neighborhood, things that the teacher cannot really control. And teachers know this, you know? And so right now we're going to teachers, hey, take 100% responsibility for a process that you can control 25% of. And the educators are like, well, we're gonna do our best. So the data shows that if we wanted to get serious about improving our educational systems, what we would do is we'd give uh, the kids a better chance to learn by putting money directly into their households. That's what the freedom dividend would do. It would reduce stress levels in the house. It would free up maybe a little bit of parental time. Um, and studies have shown that this sort of cash actually improves graduation rates. And it even improves children's personalities if their households are getting some more stable cash and there's not as much um, uh, stress and turmoil in the house. Mm -hmm. So this might sound counterintuitive, but the first thing you do to fix education is you actually just put money into the hands of families and parents so the kids have a shot at learning. The second thing you do is you have to pay teachers more because the data also shows that a good teacher is worth his or her weight in gold in terms of educational outcomes. Uh, and one of the best ways you can um, attract and retain better teachers is by increasing comp. 
And what, what do we do about the bad teachers, just to take the other side of that for a second? So I'm pro-charter, and I think it's ridiculous that we're tenuring teachers at like the two-year mark or something and make it so you, you can't be paid yeah. or you can't be disciplined fired. or fired. Um, and so one of the trade-offs for a higher level of compensation would be um, what you have to do is you have to empower principals and school leaders to be able to build their own staffs and teams. And right now, principals have their hands tied by union regs uh, and whatnot. So you have to attack both sides of it. Is you want to attract and retain good teachers and pay them more. Um, and you want to give principals the ability to, to hopefully um, make changes as necessary. So are you basically for as much school choice as possible, charter schools, whatever whatever it takes, whatever a parent wants to do, yes. in effect? Yes, I'm, I'm pro-good school. And and this is one thing that I, that blows my mind, is that people are just attacking all charter schools. Well, that, but that, but that that's, I mean, a lot of the progressives are not happy with charter schools. They don't want, they, because they want something more federally mandated, or at least mandated by the government. So they don't want charter schools. To me, it's like, choice, choice, you're a parent. If you can send your kids to a school that you like and it's not the government school that's right by your house, why the hell not? Yeah, I mean, there are excellent public schools and terrible public schools. <coughs> there are excellent charter schools and terrible charter schools. We should just be pro-excellent school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and saying that this entire category uh, of school is somehow like what, what uh, do you problematic. Make of that? What, what, if you were trying to steel man their argument, I mean, what, what, what is the argument against charter schools? I get it that some of them aren't going to be good, but there are public, as you just said, there's public schools that aren't good. Have you heard an argument that really makes sense on this? Unfortunately, I think the main argument is a political one, um, where teachers' unions hate charters. Teachers' unions are very, very powerful constituency. Uh, and so some politicians have said, I'm better served by uh, getting behind um, this point of view. Yeah, that's probably the biggest thing that you have to break, right, in politics more than anything else. Now, I don't mean the teacher union specifically, but just like that type of thinking. Yeah. That we have, a, we have an answer, choice, let people decide what they want to do, and then there's some other equation politically that causes the politicians not to do it. Oh, yeah, it's interesting. So I'm, I'm running for president, uh, doing quite well, very happy to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait, um, talk to me about the numbers real quick, because we talked about this briefly right oh, yeah, before. Sure thing. What, what are the, what's the donation situation? Because maybe we can crack this. I, oh, I, be so I, I can't sit here and endorse you, but you know what I'm saying. Well, thank what, you. What, what are the numbers? So uh, I've qualified for the June and July Democratic debates. Um, I have 116,000 donors, uh, individual donors, individual donors. donors uh, well above the 65,000 uh, donor threshold for June and July. And here's the fun thing, yeah. is that the DNC just announced the threshold for September and October, and it's 130,000. So you're knocking on the door right now. So I am 14,000 donors away from uh, qualifying for the third and fourth debates in September and October. And if we could make that happen, that would be history making. Because if we clear 130,000, then all of the press accounts, when they talk about who the, let's say, 10 candidates that are going to make it to September and October are, uh, Andrew Yang is going to be on that list. Right. Um, so, so you're 14,000 off. And it's, and it's literally only a dollar. I mean, this is just how it works, not, not just for you, but for everybody. Yep. It's a dollar donation. You're good. So you need 14,000 more people. Yes. Now you understand that because this is YouTube, this is where you have to offer the people something. You have to like be willing to do something nuts. You got to dump cold water on your head or splash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we we got another forty five minutes or so. You got so you have a little time to figure out to what formulate. You, what will you offer at the end? Sure. What, what's up? Uh, okay, this will be fun. Okay. Um, <laughs> if we get through this during my time here with Dave, yeah, I will uh, pour this water on my head. But that's not good enough. So then I will. Um, uh, 
like, uh, sing my favorite karaoke song. You will sing your favorite karaoke song if we get 14,000 more minimum $1 donations, if you qualify, during the duration of this live stream. Yes, yes I will. You will do both, so it's the water on the head and sing the song. I will sing the karaoke song with a wet head, having, <laughs> having uh, splashed this water on my head. Asian people love karaoke. Is this too easy? I can do something <laughs> like less Asian friendly. <laughs> <laughs> Where the hell were we? Okay, choice. Um, <laughs> so, so school choice. Um, all right, I think I think we pretty much got there on that one. What what, what would be very Asian unfriendly? I will disparage my parents. No. <laughs> <laughs> I actually wouldn't do that. I love my parents. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not. Uh, I'm not trying to make you disparage your parents. Here. All right, let's let's move, let's just move through. Just so you do have on your website. I mean, I think you've done the best job of saying these are my actual policies because a lot of times people just don't know what politicians' policies are. So let's just plow through a couple of them. Yes, so um, we have over 100 policies on my website, in large part because I'm a newcomer and I wanted to introduce myself to uh, America as efficiently as possible, and I thought the most efficient way to do so would just be to spell out exactly what I would do as president. Is there a weird thing for you, just like as a policy guy and as someone that thinks through these issues, that we live in a time that's not really a policy time? Like, make America great again. It's a good slogan. I understand why people like it. It's not necessarily a policy. Like, we, li <laughs> we, li we live in a time of, you know, like, you know, if you dumped water on your head and sang karaoke, that gets you on drudge today or, or something like that. And that's very reverse sort of, I think, inherently who you are. Uh, wow, that's so interesting. So uh, it, it is fun that it turns out that a rational, data-driven, problem-solving approach has its own emotional appeal to a certain subset of voters. Yeah. Uh, and this is not deliberate, this just happens to be who I am and how I'm wired, where to me, if there's a problem, you try and solve it, uh, and you know, you listen to what the data tells you. Um, is that an advantage or disadvantage? I'm actually very excited about the fact that it seems like there's a huge appetite for that approach right now among the electorate that is sick and tired of like the, um, like the arguing about like uh, various symbols and uh, culture war issues and things that are relatively marginal relative to the problems we actually face. Yeah, all right, so let's actually dive into some of the culture wars though because the one, especially for me, and that we're doing this on YouTube that's incredibly important is, is the censorship stuff and, and big tech and have these companies grown too large. I'm becoming a broken record here, but as a, as a small government guy, I don't really want the government involved yet with the amount of information that Google controls and owns over us and all of these things and the way they control all the avenues of communication. It's pushing my libertarian beliefs to, to sort of the end of the road here. Uh, do, you, do you view this as a big issue? Is this something you care about? Do you want government involvement, et cetera? Uh, it's a very big issue. I care deeply about it. Uh, and then the, the question we have to figure out is who do we want making these kinds of decisions? Uh, I would suggest that we probably want to have some say ourselves in these, decision, in these decisions, which would suggest that the government be an active um, decision maker as opposed to just letting big tech platforms make decisions as our proxies. Uh, and at this point, even some of the big tech companies are throwing their hands up and saying, we should not be making these decisions. Do, do you think they want regulation at this point? But because not only because it's imp an impossible set of decisions, but also in a weird way that would ultimately hold their monopoly on all of this stuff once the government was involved? I think that they expect that regulation is inevitable, and they're trying to make it uh, like the most benign for version for their interests that it can be. So what, what would your strong preference be then? Like is the government, like are we talking about breaking up these companies? Do you, like, 
I, I always say this, but it's like I'm in California. I pay my state taxes on a California state website. It looks like Prodigy in 1993. Like the idea that the government is going to come in and understand the epic problems. You know, a government regulator is going to come in and understand the algorithm and the rest of what's going on at YouTube sounds so bananas to me. It's like I could only see this creating other problems down the road. So you definitely don't want government like take like uh, controlling it and executing on it. Uh, I think you do want government um, to be able to provide very, very clear uh, rules and guidelines so that everyone knows what uh, really where we all stand. Um, and in terms of where I would stand, I think that we have become overly sensitive to the fact that if someone has an idea that uh, is something I disagree with, that it's somehow going to be harmful to me to either be exposed to that or to have some sort of um, contact with uh, that person or organization. Um, so one, I think the government does need to get involved. I think the tech companies at this point are expecting it. And two, if you were to create guidelines, I would want them to be uh, as mindful of the fact that uh, that we live in a country where you know free speech is protected, and that people need to be able to express different type, types of viewpoints without feeling like they're going to get cast out of uh, the public forum. So you would basically sort of treat them like a public utility. That basically everyone should have access to them, and as long as you're not breaking the laws of the United States, so, something like that. That that's pretty much where I'm at. If I had to go the yeah. government route, it's like if you're not breaking the laws of the United States, I believe everyone should have access to these things. And then if you're selling drugs on them or involved in terrorism or something else, but beyond that, it's like if you're Steven Crowder and you make a joke, or you're me and you talk to somebody who who's shady or whatever, you know what I mean, as an interviewer or whatever. It's like you have a right to do all of those things, but if you're breaking the direct laws of the United States, then there's something else. Yeah, I'm on the same page, but you know th this is one of the struggles. Uh, this guy Jaron Lanier, have you spoken to him? He's one of the internet pioneers. No. He said something that really stuck with me. He said that the internet is much better at transmitting negative sentiments and ideas than positive sentiments yeah. and ideas. Have you been on Twitter? <laughs> and, 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 and that has very profound uh, repercussions. And so that, that's one of the reasons why people are struggling so much with this, is that they feel like, in principle, you and I are on the same page, it's like, look, as long as you're not breaking the law, like, people should be able to say what they want. But then some of these negative ideas and, and sentiments and emotions uh, are so um, uh, viral uh, in such a propulsive way that then, like, in many ways, then, like, the natural reaction is to say, oh, I guess we have to clamp down on that. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, clamp down on this, that, that, and then it ends up being a line drawing problem and a slippery slope. Yeah. So, so basically, you just, but you're saying you have to suck it up, though, right? Because that's the risk you have to take. You're going to hear some bad stuff. Yeah, I, I, I think the real, there's like a saying, it's like, um, it's something like, uh, you know, uh, train the child, not the road, mm -hmm. is that like, we need to make ourselves more resilient such that if I see a, an idea that I find antagonistic or offensive, um, that it, it, I don't think that's necessarily something that's criminal. Yeah, in a weird way, this is sort of personal to your campaign because some of you, you've gotten, a, you know, I, as I said to you earlier, I think you get a nice amount of coverage on the in the online space, and I think because you talk about ideas, and this is where there is fertile ground for that, it's working. But I've seen some of the mainstream things on you where it's like, oh, the, tro <laughs> the trolls of the internet, like Andrew Yang, or the alt-right, or something like that, and it's like, I'm so in this thing that I, I always know when I see one of these articles. 
articles. I'm like, if that's what they're saying, then it's obviously not true. <laughs> but the piece that I would say is true is I think there's a, there, the sort of meme makers, the Yang gang on Twitter and all that, they like you and there's a reason for that. And then the media doesn't know, the mainstream media doesn't know exactly how to relate to that. They can't understand that memes could be being made of this guy who's talking about universal basic income, who isn't promising the world to everybody. So then they sort of have to make it sound like, oh, well, he must be in bed with the, the evil forces under the internet or, or something like that. Yeah, and, and I try and um, say, it's like, do I look like a white nationalist <laughs> to anyone? It's like, you know, I mean, I'm the freaking son of immigrants and, uh, um, I feel like they, you know, might not welcome me. Yeah. Gay Jew, welcome to the party. Yeah, it's, it's like, it's, we're really doing this thing wrong, man. Yeah, there's, there's something has gone amiss. <laughs> so, uh, but, but it's, so you, it's, it's been surprising to me. My, yeah. the, 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 the treatment in the mainstream sometimes has just been very confusing to me. Well, because I've seen once or twice you get asked this question on mainstream things. Yes. And it's like, and then it, it automatically makes you defensive, like as if you have some ownership over it. And it's like, that, that's just why people can't stand mainstream media, I think, at this point. Uh, yes, I have had that experience. And it, it's, uh, it's been sometimes uh, difficult to answer the same question over and over again when you're just like, if you've seen any other interview with me in like a similar channel, it's like, why ask me the same question? I'm just going to say the same thing I did there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. We could just press play. You could just be walking around with your, your iPhone going, well, here's my answer to that one. Um, yeah, there's like a fixation on it. And w the way I think about it is that people on the internet are actual real human beings <laughs> who happen to I have think. an internet connection. Yeah. And, uh, and distinguishing between them and other types of citizens just strikes me as bizarre. Yeah. It's like people on the internet equals just people. The, the, as far they're as I they're just people. They're not yeah. all Russian bots. Yeah. Well, you know, if someone inventoried um, my... Uh, social media following, and it came up like 97% human. So uh, it, it's that's got to be the best of the of the crew that you're involved in. Yeah. That, so if you do the same exercise on other politicians' mm -hmm. uh, social media followings, you get much lower it's proportions like 40%, of humans. Something, <laughs> yeah. something like that. I can like see you're not trying to throw anyone under the bus here. Let's just say there are a lot of bots out there yeah. for some reason following a lot of these candidates. Uh, beyond just sort of the gotcha questions of mainstream media, what do you make of the general state? of media in general, where it seems like it's just, you know, the, sh the short questions, cable news, I mean, just the state of our sort of paralysis and right versus left and Trump this and, you know, the focus on sort of all the wrong things. All the I time. did not realize how institutionalized the media companies were until running for president. Uh, and a lot of it is the format of a cable news hit where the most time you're going to have is five or six minutes typically, and the rhythm is so abbreviated where uh, the, the odds of you having any kind of genuine intellectual exchange are uh, very low, and so you just end up um, you know, trotting out very similar talking points over and over again. And the uh, interviewers are um, fixated on certain types of yeah. uh, ideas and talking points, so, so it starts to feel very repetitive. Um, it's one reason why we're screwed, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying, man. I'm trying. Really, to I mean, it. no, it's one reason I'm yeah. grateful to be here, and I appreciate <laughs> the, this format um, because the media institutions uh, are confused uh, somewhat by my campaign, but they're um, accustomed to this very powerful gatekeeping role that is waning mm -hmm. quite quickly. 
and so we're in an era of institutional collapse. Yeah. Do, do you see that across <laughs> the board? No, really, I, but I, I think you're right. I mean, we see this across the board. The media gatekeeping collapse, academia, for some of the reasons you laid out. I mean, I think we see this across the board in, in many industries. I mean, the retail industry, we could look at this, that all of these things are sort of crumbling, and the gatekeepers are sort of freaking out. And I, I sympathize with them. I don't want things to burn. There's so many great things in this country. Like, look at us. Like, what an incredible experience this is, you know? And yet, things are changing whether they like it or not, and because they're hanging on so hard or something, that, that's making it worse. Yes, and, and this is one reason why I'm so passionate about uh, universal basic income and the freedom dividend. So we're living through an era of institutional collapse, uh, and when the closer you get to the guts of many of these institutions, like the clearer it gets to you. And so what are we can, gonna can do? Can you give me an example of that, like maybe an academic example? Or, or just something. Oh, an academic example. I mean, like it's very dark where you have all of these people who get PhDs and then they wind up being permanent uh, postdocs and adjuncts, and like they, they're never going to get paid above a certain level. They're ne there, it's never going to be a tenure track position for them, and so they just wind up being subsistence uh, laborers uh, at these universities um, for uh, as long as they can stand it. And then eventually, you know, like ma many of them um, can't stand it, or like uh, they they. Uh, I mean, there's even a tragic story in the Atlantic about like you know an academic like dies early because of like the stress levels associated with that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, because basically the machine never changed along the way, right? So years ago you would have thought I can get this job, I can go here, go there, move up the ladder, or let's say it's in the academic world. There's a way to get to become a tenured professor. Where now there just aren't as many jobs, and now yes, but they but they've never come clean with that. And it, like Eric Weinstein said this, where it's like the growth model is making scoundrels and liars of us all, where it's like you just uh, bullshit like incoming PhDs being like, yeah, there'll be something for you. And then right. there isn't, or a law school graduate, like the law school's being like, yeah, there'll be a, a, a law firm job for you and there won't be, or if they join the law firm, there'll never be a partner spot because the firms aren't growing anymore. So uh, there, there's just a lot of false promises being laid out there by institutions. Uh, and we have to evolve as fast as possible. Uh, it's one reason why, again, like if we get this dividend done, then we can actually end up building a whole new set of institutions that are much closer to our, our own values and our own vision for our own lives and our communities and do the work that we want to do. Uh, but, but because of the current erosion of institutions, we're gonna wind up in a couple of extreme scenarios over time. Um, and so it may seem extreme to people listening to this, uh, everyone gets a thousand bucks a month. This to me is the most positive extreme scenario we can formulate as fast as possible. Um, the, the negative extreme scenarios are catastrophic. Uh, and they're, they're coming faster than most people think. Well, I think a lot of people do think about it, but maybe they don't know what that looks like, like the full sort of collapse of this whole thing. Do you, do you think about that? Like, I, I don't like I think thinking it, about it or talking about it because it's like you don't want to sort of give it air in a way, you know? Well, and, and, but that's one reason why a forum like this is so important is that like a lot of the other media companies would never actually give it oxygen. Um, so to, to me, again, I mean, like how many Americans know that our life expectancy is getting shorter because of uh, record suicides and drug overdoses, that our stress levels and um, anxiety levels and depression levels are at record highs? Um, this is that 40% of American children are born to unmarried mothers, um, up from 15% when uh, like I was growing up. And, you know, it's like, you know, you can have different points of view about marriage, but there's a lot of clear data about um, kids growing up in single parent households and like, uh, you know, um, negative outcomes oh, as, man, as a result is, of this that. This is where the haters are gonna say you're for enforced monogamy. 
I mean, I'm not. But you believe in the fa- you believe in the family. Well, I I think that if you have kids and the data shows that it's better if like there are a couple of adults around as opposed to one adult around, then you know we should be trying to make that more common. So one of the things I'm proposing is like, look, lots of single moms. Let's have like uh, places where lots of single moms can live together. Um, and then they can just cook one meal a week and then like feed each other's kids and not have it so that the kid's always alone. I mean, like, like that to me would be a very reasonable um, <laughs> you know, like thing that you would try to, right. um, try to streamline and make easier. Um, but the way the collapse looks is disintegration. Uh, and, and I learned this by living and working in a place like Detroit for um, a period of time where Detroit had a peak population of 1.8 million and now it's population 670,000. Mm. So you go there and there are tens of thousands of derelict buildings. It's, uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, people really can't believe what, what it looks like in some of those areas. Yeah. yeah, and so you have 30% of American malls that are gonna close in the next four years. Have you been to a ghost mall? I don't think so. Because they are also eerie. Yeah, as... that's got to be seriously like walking. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like zombie movie type yeah. stuff. Can you just you can't just wander in, right? I mean, you've probably been privileged enough to just wander in, you know, because you've got to fix the repair, you know. I mean, I, I've been, or even if you've been to a mall that's like mostly <laughs> yeah, like I've been to those. Like, or like a dying mall. Dying yeah. mall, sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been in you know like ghost malls too. I mean, that, like the so. Um, this, uh, to me, like the rubber hits the road when we start automating away the trucker jobs. And, and I'm on the record talking about the fact that, look, if you have three and a half million 49-year-old men who didn't think their jobs are at stake, what are the odds that at least a few thousand of them decide to park their trucks someplace it's not supposed to be? I mean, dozens of truckers protested in Indiana a few months ago by doing something called a slow roll. So they started driving their trucks slow <laughs> on, on the highway there, but behind them was like, why are we all going so slow? They were protesting the digital monitoring of their driving time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were mad about that. Mm-hmm. How mad do you think they're gonna be when it's their livelihood on the line, their life savings they put into their like mini fleet of trucks on the line? Do you think if, if we would have thought about these issues differently or if the right set of people would have thought about the technological issues and the speed which, with which everything's changing, if we would have thought about this differently in a public way, say 10 or 15 years ago, we might have put up some barriers to some of this stuff. I, I don't believe that those barriers can actually be because I am a believer that once, once the cat's out of the bag, once progress exists, yep. once technology exists, you can't stop it. I don't think there's any evidence in human history that you can. But do you think that if we would have, and maybe some people were, really thinking these through 10 years ago, that it would have not led us here or that maybe the boundaries of the sort of craziness might have been a little different? There are things we could have done, for sure. Um, and it starts with a belief in our people, uh, where the the countermeasure for the lost manufacturing jobs was shitty retraining programs that didn't work. <laughs> I know. The better countermeasure would have been like, hey, certain companies and certain um, parts of our society are going to benefit to the tune of billions of dollars from this globalization. You're going to lose your job. Most of it was automation, it wasn't globalization, so it's 80% automation. You're going to lose your job. We're going to start spreading the bounty to you as quickly as possible and give you a path forward. Same thing with trucking. $168 billion in potential cost savings per year by automating truck driving jobs. Mm -hmm. How much of that right now are the truckers going to receive? Probably zero. Right. right. Yeah. Right. So Elon's basically going to put these Tesla trucks out there. I don't blame him for it. It's freaking amazing technology. A lot of people are going to go out of work because of it. 
Yes. And, and the, right, the guys that are losing their job, they're not, well, they're going to get on the government dole then because they'll get unemployment. Perhaps. <laughs> right. And, Wait, why only perhaps? Well, you know, it, it's true that they could file for unemployment, um, but right now unemployment benefits aren't permanent. Right. Uh, oh, and, oh and, and some, but at least in the short, stop gap, you then have more government expense, and then... And then, and then they file for disability. Right. Um, because um, about half of the manufacturing workers that lost their jobs ended up on disability in various states. Uh, and the two major conditions um, uh, uh, that they filed for were mood disorders and uh, musculoskeletal problems, which is generally a bad back. Hmm. How many truck drivers do you think have a bad back? All of them. Pr pretty much everyone. <laughs> <Pretty much everybody, laughs> or they will. If they don't right now, they will. In, yeah, they in, don't in a year. yeah. So, so uh, I mean, 80% of truckers have an... Uh, a marker for like a chronic health problem. So obesity, disease, high blood pressure, like uh, um, diabetes, high blood pressure, like some condition. So um, they'll wind up in, on the, uh, on the uh, government uh, expense line in a very dark, punitive, dehumanizing way that's going to be debilitating. Um, and so what we have to do is we have to start owning, saying, okay, if this transition's on, then um, we should be taking at least some proportion of this $168 billion and trying to create like a more active runway. We should have done that with the automation of manufacturing jobs too. Uh, that, that's why, again, Donald Trump is our president today, is that no one was actually speaking to that. Uh, all right, so let's just knock out. You got, you got a little more time for me? Sure. Oh, wait, right. no. So yeah. I, I didn't even, oh. like, so education is pay teachers more, but here's the thing about education I want to uh, hit, is that so many of the, the um, Dems are talking about free college, free college, free college. College is way too expensive. We need to bring the cost down. But only 33% of Americans will attend college. 67% uh, will either not go to college or they'll attend like a two-year associates or a community college. So what we have to do is we have to dramatically invest in vocational technical training and apprenticeship programs. Right now only 6% of American high school students are in technical training. In Germany that's 59%. Mm -hmm. So think of that gulf. And then we have to destigmatize trade jobs. We have to get micro of dirty jobs and me as president in the White House being like, these are great jobs. <laughs> and then we have to get all these high school kids to say like, look, college is not for everyone. Right now we're, we're trumpeting this fantasy that college is the end all be all. College has gone up in price 250%, which is its own set of problems. But the six year graduation rate from a four year college right now is only 59%. Four, four out of 10 kids who are starting college are not finishing within six years because they probably should not have been there. Are you ready to have that blowout fight with Bernie on the debate stage? Because when he says college for everybody, free college for everybody, and again, it sounds good, and I get why he's saying it, and then you say, well, actually, college isn't for everybody, and we need more trade jobs and things like that. People, people are going to say, oh, somehow, they're, oddly, they're going to say you're the elitist. Like, you know, you think I only a certain, well, but that's what they're going to say is, oh, you think only a certain set of people from a certain way of life deserve to go to college, and other people are just going to have to suck it up with their crappy trade jobs. I think that's actually a more honest answer but well, just the you. way the media frames things, I mean, you, that's something to me that will really come to loggerheads if, if the debates ever get good and get really about substance. Um, you may see that exchange on June 26th on the debate stage, because uh, it, it could be just me next to Bernie. I'll give you a birthday present. And just, like, in front <laughs> I want a shout on out on that one. This free college stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not, and again, it's like the minimum wage. It's like, am I for bringing down the cost of college? Yes. Am I for pretending that's going to be like the cure-all for like our current economic ills? No, because it's not. <laughs> and again, the unemployment rate for recent college grads is 44%. That does not change if I make it free. 
It's like, is it better for them to be underemployed and not have giant debt loads? Yes. But like, is that going to be necessarily the path forward for everyone? No. Right. And plus the amount of money we would have had to put in to do that for them to then not have the path to the job. Yes. So the, the, what we have to do is we have to go to the colleges and say, why the heck did you get so expensive? Um, and the reason they're so expensive is that the ratio of administrators to students, non-faculty, the yeah. non-teaching administrators, has gone up 150%. Um, over the last number of years. So we have to try and get the administrator to student ratio under control. All right, so I want to do a couple more on policy, but just one on sort of the idea, oh, sure. on the idea side. Um, identity politics, which seemingly has become the cultural issue, and I think almost every, almost every one of the policy issues is now rooted in identity politics. So I think you can argue that the way we talk about free college is somehow rooted in identity politics. Certainly immigration is rooted in identity politics. That we, we're sadly whittling everyone down to, you're an Asian man and I must have some judgment on you because of that, and this person's white and this person's black and this person's Muslim, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do you view identity, I've heard you talk about it a little bit actually, but do you view identity politics as positive, as dangerous, as a tool for something? I, I under, it's like a lot of the other things we've been talking about. It's like I understand the, um, the sentiment and uh, ideas um, around identity politics. Um, I don't think it's a great way to uh, try and build consensus or bring people together or get big policies across the finish line. Um, and I think it's a kind of stupid way to try and win elections. Um, and so I think the Democratic Party needs to try and gravitate away from identity politics and towards things that would actually uh, bridge the gap. Um, so that's one of my missions uh, during this campaign is to make that case to say, look, I understand people have different experiences. I've had different experiences. Uh, but if we're going to solve some of these problems, we have to emphasize the things that will um, bring us together and not the things that are going to make us seem like we're living different lives. Is, so that must be pretty sad for you to see how far the Democratic Party has gone in on this, or at least some of the other candidates that you're going to be standing on stage with have gone with this. Yeah, it, it's been really interesting for me because like, I, I'm, I was... Um, you know, it's like I, I've been like a, you know, Democrat, and like I thought it's like, hey, it's like I'm just like you guys, like. You know, Who cares? Like, like, Who cares? Yeah, and um, but the odd thing is, they, they who, I don't mean the people on stage necessarily, but they, the people that buy into these ideas, would look at you and go, okay, well, he's Asian, and and because of the way Asians are socioeconomically successful and families <laughs> stay together and all these things, your markers of identity are the ones that get punished. I mean, obviously, I'm sure I don't have to tell you about what happened with Harvard and the Asian students that they wanted to deflate the numbers on. And it's like, no one gave your parents from Taiwan anything when they got here, but they want you to be punished because they worked hard and now you work hard. Well, you know, it's like uh, the, the uh, Asian American identity, certainly it's, it's got like its own distinct place in like the, <laughs> like the sort of uh, like, you know, identity hierarchy, I suppose. Um, I would but, say a very precarious place, unfortunately. Uh, but like the, the case I'm making is like, look, my parents came here to, uh, to have a better life for me and my brother, and it's worked. Uh, and now I'm trying to give back. Um, and, and that's uh, you know, been my experience as an American. I'm a very proud American. And um, I want to try and make this country stronger so that uh, my kids and, and you know, other people's kids grow up in a country that we're all still excited about. And we do not have that much time to make that happen because things are coming apart very quickly. All right, so let's knock out a few more. How about immigration? That's not controversial. Well, Talk uh, to me. Uh, 
I'm for a path to citizenship for people who are here and undocumented. Uh, we have over 12 million people who are here. Trying to deport that many people is impossible. It would collapse regional economies. It would be completely um, inhumane. Uh, and so the choices are one of three things. One, pretend you can deport them, even though it would be like a complete catastrophe on multiple levels. Yeah, and nobody really wants to do that. I mean, I, mean, I guess someone does, but the, when you really say, all right, we have all these people and what it would really take yeah, it's, in, in government force to rip people out of homes and all that stuff. Yeah, it would be, um, it would just be like the, the worst chapter in American history yeah. to like even try. Yeah, and we'd we'd be we'd fail at it. So so what is a pathway? So I, I get path. You want them to right. have an opportunity to do that. So what does that actually mean? They have to first say I'm here, right? Yeah, and and we all know that whatever path you create, a lot of people are never going to opt into it because they just don't trust us, the government, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but if you opted in, pay your taxes. Uh, no criminal record, um, and then you abide by these requirements and keep a clean record for a number of years. I'm thinking like, oh, or, or the official proposal we have is 18 years. Um, and at the end of that time, then um, you would become a citizen if you pass um, certain requirements. And then in this, uh, during this period, then you have this new class of citizenship that's essentially like a, um, like a legal resident. Right. And is there anything they don't get in that time? Because I think a lot of people that are legal immigrants, new, let's say a legal immigrant two years into the country, looks at the illegal immigrant. I mean, we, we're seeing this weird tension now, and I think in a lot of the Hispanic communities where they're going, wait a minute, I did what I had to do, I followed the rules, I did all of those things, and now you're going to suddenly let people who snuck in or, or used family trickery or whatever it is to get in, they're going to somehow jump jump ahead or get benefits that I didn't get, et cetera, Well, that, et that, that's one reason why the waiting period would need to be really substantial. Yeah. Um, but we also do need to try and rationalize our process for people who are here and have green cards, for people who study um, at American universities. We should be fighting to keep those people instead of kicking them out of the country. Like, if you come here and get a, <laughs> like, a degree from one of our universities, we don't want you to go home and compete against us. Like, right. stick around. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a great place to, to yeah. To build a build a life, um, so there there and we we do need to enforce the border. Like uh, I'm not someone who thinks that, you know, uh, open borders are realistic. So so what does that mean though? Actually enforcing the border? Well, we need to uh, actually uh, put the resources to work. So if you dig into what's going on on the border right now, we have hundreds of open positions that we just can't even hire for because no one wants to live down there, hmm. and the turnover is really high. And that service pays less than just about any other service. So it's like, huh, let me see, am I going to go live on like the southern border and get paid less and like have very little room for advancement and be away from like my family and civilization? Like, like so, so this, this is the, it got so bad that that service hired uh, a big consulting firm, I think Accenture, and paid them millions of dollars to like figure out how to hire people just better. Just how to get somebody down there. Yeah, and, and it, I think it ended up like uh, getting them like 12 applicants <laughs> or something like it was like 12 million dollars later they got like 12 applicants so so that we have like uh, like actual just execution problems on the southern border it's one reason why the wait periods are so long it's like you show up and you know you you uh um we're just understaffed there and then you end up with sometimes very tragic results yeah you think there's technological answers to some of this some yes, most of it no. Like I, I dug into it and was trying to figure out how technology could help, and most of it is old school, unfortunately, for now. Yeah, so you can sort of have surveillance, but you actually have to have sort of people there, basically. Yeah, most of it, yes. Yeah. Um, 
let's talk about abortion. So I told you right before we started. So I am pro-choice. I've been pro-choice my entire life. I can treat people who are pro-life respectfully, and I've had many of them on here and have had interesting conversations. I think, I think that the abortion one brings out something in the national dialogue that sort of gets to the heart of all of the anger, where it's like, you know, if you're on the right, you say that the left hates babies, and if you're on the left, you say that the right hates women, and I think that's just an absolutely false choice, but that's really what we're being thrown at all the time. Uh, you are pro-choice, but you want to explain that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I agree with you that right now it's getting culturally freighted, um, but I think that uh, women should have the ability to make their own determination. It's a deeply personal decision. Um, I mean, in an ideal society, whenever a woman was getting pregnant, she'd be excited to like, you know, like um, bring that baby into the world. But uh, in, like, that's not the world we live in. Uh, and so, I, I want to protect women's reproductive rights in any way I can. Uh, and um, do you do you have a cutoff point? Is there a set amount of weeks or months that, at that point? Uh, well, certainly, I find late-term abortions to be, like, you know, really problematic. Um, but my understanding is that those are extraordinarily rare, unless there's some sort of medical circumstance. Um, and so I would be reluctant to have some sort of uh, date cut off because, uh, again, in, in my view, um, it should be up to the uh, woman what, what to do. Yeah. So six months, a woman has a perfectly viable fetus at six months, and you would still give her that choice? I would. Yeah, it's, t it's really tough. I mean, I've heard a lot of good arguments against it, but I, I'll respect your position. Um, all right, I got two more for you. Sure. Non-policy. Non let's, let's just talk about the future. And I'm going to try to end on a positive note. If, if oh, every, I, if, I actually have that rule too. It's like uh, I have to sort of end. Yeah, on let's a end, well, let's end on. Because, I don't want to end because I tend shirt, to be right? I tend to be a little bit um, uh, depressing. <laughs> not, not really, though. You know, it's weird because I think people think if you talk about serious issues that somehow you're depressing or mm -hmm. you're like, you know, too much of a realist or something like that. But it's like without this, this is the only thing that can give us hope. It's not just the slogans that that are going to give us hope. Oh, I, be I believe so. So thank you for not causing uh, for not calling me uh, depressing. Let me see yeah, I, I may need you to dump the water on your head either way at the end of this. Thing. Let's, <laughs> let's see how let's see how this goes. So I want you to just paint two futures. Uh, the, there's the last two things I'm going to ask you. I want you to paint one future if things really go that that meltdown route and continue to destabilize, and we don't heed the warnings and we don't bring in leaders that can honestly fix these things. And then obviously the positive one is okay. We start getting a handle on these issues. How does some of what seemingly feels like it's spinning out of control, how does some of that actually come back? Um, like how do we reconstitute? Yeah. Or so give me the version, if, the version if we just screw this thing up. Like we have, we have a, the, in my view, the greatest experiment ever is the United States. Yeah. And if, if, give me the vision of if we really just don't fix these problems, what this looks like in 20 years, and then, and then the reverse of that. So uh, in, in 20 years, if we uh, don't, change our ways, um, you're going to wind up with uh, the most unequal society in the history of the world economically. Like a winner-take-all economy on a scale that we can barely imagine. And we're already uh, at one of the most extreme points in our history right now, maybe the most extreme point. But this is before uh, technology and capital converge to really uh, create wealth at a scale that right now most of us can, can barely fathom. And unfortunately, that wealth right now is going to get concentrated in the hands of a smaller and smaller group of companies and individuals. And the reverse will be true at the bottom, where people will be looking around and they're 
uh, paths forward and their livelihoods are going to disappear more and more. One of the stats that I find most depressing is that the rates of interstate migration right now are at multi-decade lows in the United States. So people aren't moving for new opportunities, they're hunkering down. Mm -hmm. So think about what that means, that if you keep having the uh, opportunities diminish in these places, but people just hunker down and stay, that you wind up with a, a, a real degradation of your way of life of your culture, of your society. That's how you see these massive drug problems. And then you pile some climate change on top of that where a lot of these these towns uh, you know, are going to unfortunately bear the brunt of a change in climate. Um, and then our government will not be able to ever come to any sort of meaningful agreement and solutions. Uh, you'll have polarization uh, ideologically around the country. You'll have this left and right um, uh, factions that really are just talking past each other, watching different media channels, getting completely different news from uh, social media feeds and, and fragmented media. Uh, and the, it, the average American's way of life will start to, to suffer and our faith in institutions, which has already collapsed, will just stay uh, low and, and decline even further. That's, to me, the path of least resistance right now. Yeah, you didn't throw in zombies or alien invasion or any of that stuff. Riding truckers and, uh, <laughs> you know, like uh, um, self-driving uh, pizza delivery cars, which will find both delightful and mildly dystopian. Right, they, you know, Skynet takes over the whole thing. Okay, so that, that's the negative one. Now give me the one if we start getting a handle on some of these issues. So the, the positive vision of the future is that we realize that we're in uh, an age of unprecedented prosperity and wealth and resources. And we start recalibrating the way we measure our economy instead of GDP, which is a measurement we made up almost 100 years ago. We start aiming towards our own health and mental health and childhood success rates and environmental quality and freedom from substance abuse. Uh, and things that we're actually excited about and say these are actually going to be the new measurements of economic progress. We start distributing some of this $20 trillion bounty as fast as possible and then get Americans around the country oriented towards actually trying to figure out what kind of work that they want to do, what kind of work that we want to do. We build new institutions to provide new pathways of structure, purpose, fulfillment, and meaning. We start uh, holding more of these institutions that right now are, are um, bloated and inefficient, we start trying to um, bring them back into line with the, the rest of society in terms of like their um, mission and resources and alignment. Uh, and we have this American identity that stands the test of time, and we're able to look up and say, uh, we're excited about our shared progress, and that when that person wins, even if that person's different from me, or, or um, you know, that person lives in another part of the country, like I'm benefiting from that because I'm a shareholder of this country and when that person wins, then my dividend goes up a, a tiny, tiny bit. Mm -hmm. All right, since we did two plus hours and I didn't try to get you, I just wanted to hear your ideas, which I have, can you do me a favor? What's that? Can you, can you just tell can you? Can I win the whole thing? You got it, Dave. <laughs> can you become president of the United States? So I, saw, so I said I talked to the president of the United States. No. Nope. Can you tell Mayor Pete that I'm not such a bad guy? Um, yeah, I'm, but really, I mean, in, I'm, in the I'm, scheme of how silly this is. Okay, here is, we go. Know? I'm literally going to see him this weekend in Iowa, and I will say to him, hey, I had this incredible two-hour-plus conversation with Dave Rubin, and you should really talk to your team about going on. I will do that. At least I could do. This has been an absolute pleasure. I think this is what can fix some of this craziness, and... Uh, 
hopefully you get to the 130. Well, I have no doubt you're getting to the 130. So uh, I look forward to tracking this. And uh, how about we do this again? Uh, well, maybe before you're president, but if you become president, then I'm certainly coming to knock on the door. This has been a, a lot of fun. So I'll tell you what. One, after I'm in the White House, we'll do a special Rubin report from the White House. Love it. But two, I'd be happy to come back um, even before then. Yeah, let's do it, my friend. All right, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And you guys can check out at Andrew Yang on Twitter and hashtag Yang Gang. And it's, uh, it's Yang2020.com, right? Yeah, that's right. And Yang2020.com.